This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. This is the show where we give you the information, the tools you need to live a healthier, happier life. I'm telling you, folks, it's a uh, it's a hard thing. You come to this great big ball of mud we call Earth, and then all of a sudden you got to figure it out. And some of us are dealt, you know, quite a blow. You might have parents that are a little strange. You might uh, be born into a family that is incredibly conservative, and yet you're very liberal. How on earth are you supposed to make sense of this, or vice versa? Today, we are going to uh, be having a very interesting conversation about uh, political discourse. You may have noticed that it's getting it's getting kind of, um, what would you say, Terry? Heated? Heated. There seems to be a divide in this country, and a divide about um, the Donald Trump and maybe a, uh, a Bernie, the Burn, the Burnster, has, they've been able to kind of plug into. And uh, no matter what you think of, for example, Donald Trump's approach, he has a lot of people that resonate with what he's saying. There's a lot of kind of angry, anti-establishment we keep talking about, feelings. So we're going to be talking with a guest um, about the fact that maybe what's happening is it's becoming anti-intellectual. You know what I mean? It's, it's, It's no longer about the data or the research, let's say. It's no longer about... It's just emotional. It's so emotionally charged. So we'll be talking about, you know, is is the country becoming less intellectual when your leader calls everyone a loser? And and in doing this, people, you run into a, an issue where you start ignoring facts because it doesn't match what you think is true. Right. And so you just dismiss things because yeah. this is the way we think it is. That's right. When it can be shown you that it might right. not be that I mean, way. global warming is an interesting case where they would say, just I mean, go with the facts. But then some of you know, the facts are up for debate. So it's interesting. It's an interesting topic. And our guest, I think, uh, it's, it's going to be enlightening. The one that's interesting is the tax plans. Yeah. Each candidate comes up with their own, their own approach data. to taxes. Exactly. And then newspapers like the Wall Street Journal, those types of things, they, they get their their economist people in, they break it down and they tell you this isn't going to work. Right. The next day you go to the candidate and say this is, isn't going to work. And, well, that's their opinion. Right. Well, yeah. My by, numbers. By well, math. Right. And I, they have – you have your math, they have their math and you have to figure out what's, you know, what's there. And if, if the candidate just ignores right. any criticism, then – you know, you might miss something. So that's kind of the and, and then what you do is you just you just play on their fears, you play on their prejudice, you play on all of these things. So it's it's an interesting um, it's an interesting discussion. And but the thing is, is there's a huge group of people that feel disenfranchised, and they're not necessarily being led by the data. So. We're going to be talking to one person who has a view that maybe they're just being led by their, you know, their innate fear of, you know, being taken advantage of, their beliefs of just their prejudice. So it's, it'll be interesting. We'll get to that in a few minutes. But um, what – when you think about it, 
What would you say is the takeaway from politics in the last two days? Where would you go, Terry? If you thought just, you know, Iowa, now we're moving on to New Hampshire, anything? Polling is off. Polling's way off. Because Trump was supposed to have all this support and he was able to uh, come in second. I mean, people are uh, supposed to be that way. So then the question is, how big of a lead do these candidates have in New yeah. Hampshire? Yeah. Is Bernie's lead that big? Because he has a, what is like a 20 point lead yeah, on or more. On... And Hillary's thinking, oh, I can take that. Yeah. Just a little hit there. That's it. I mean, I think Trump, I, I think Trump is performing well in New Hampshire. At least that's what the polls say. But mm-hmm. they said he was doing well in Iowa, too. So Trump, I guess, is even now admitting that uh, it may have hurt him. The skipping the debate may have hurt. I mean, that was like a, maybe a mistake. I mean, it's really interesting. There's been a humbling of the Donster. Yeah. I mean, Marco Rubio says that he that with Trump skipping it probably helped him mm-hmm. to close that distance, and then uh, Cruz said it probably helped him to move past Trump. It's uh, just because he wasn't there, you were able to focus on these other candidates, right? Isn't nothing wrong with that. And then Donald's caught in a situation where he can't really condemn what he did because he was raising money for veterans. And the, I, that's the, a positive exactly. thing. So you're like, Ugh. And this just in, I, I were, I'm sure you were going to talk about it, Senator Rand Paul. Yeah. He has announced he is out. That's huge. Excuse me. Suspending his the, campaign. No one's out. <laughs> you're not out till the fat lady sings at the inauguration, I guess, is the theme, is the title of the... Now, is there a point where you have to actually say you're shutting it down? Well, I think by the time you die. Or does it just run indefinitely? Is is John McCain still running for president, no, think, even though it's suspended? But I do think they keep it open uh, I, I, because they still have to, like, cash out their yeah. coffers and move the money appropriately. There's got to be tax issues there. Yeah. And, some, some thing they're trying to And they to have to handle all their bills. <laughs> Or some don't. I always love the candidates where in about six months you hear they have some outstanding pizza bill with Pizza Hut. I know. You it's, always, like, it's like thousands of dollars. Two million dollars. But Rand Paul got 4% of Iowa, didn't he? I believe so. I mean, that's a big deal. So those votes are going to go somewhere, and many would say they're going to go to Cruz. Huh. So Cruz may have just picked up 4%. You think Rand Paul would be the opposite of Cruz? It'd be tough for his supporters to yeah. make that switch. Well, and I think if I were Rand Paul, I'd be ticked that my people went anywhere because yeah. he's by this point, these guys have got to be kind of mad at each other, <laughs> even though they say they're you know they're good friends. It's all in good fun. No, no, you're calling each other out. You're you're questioning their morals. You're and all kinds of yeah. stuff. So there goes the libertarian kind of wing right there because Rand was the man for that. Yes, I mean now. They're going to print maybe, maybe if I didn't, I didn't think Rand would go this early. So usually he hangs around because he's, he's kind of a fringe uh, candidate, if you will. Like yeah. he's not going to make a, a run at it, but he can bring ideas into the discussion. Well, too, he's been, you know, he got booted off the big table, the little table, and then back to the big table. And then he just didn't So he's show probably up. been thinking about this a lot longer. Yeah, he, he showed signs. That's but why you think he could continue just to be out there. Because people will get – the media wants to talk to him because he has something to say and he's interesting. But maybe this is the reality is there's probably six other candidates that would love to do what Rand's doing right now. Why is Carly still in? Carly Fiorina. She got like .0 something I think it's because Donald made fun of her looks. Is that what it is? Yeah. Hmm. She's going to try to outlast Donald. Man. It's crazy. So, you know, somebody else is going to drop out. I mean – 
maybe today. Someone else, maybe. Could be. I bet they're excited to get out of this thing. Go home. Like, you know, what's his name had to go home and get clothes? Ben Carson. So now Alle- all of a sudden. Uh, now, now it's allegedly. Allegedly. Did you hear Chris Christie go off? About being gum on their shoes or something? Well, yeah. And like, I'll take on Rubio. He's oh. like after Rubio. Well, that's the next That's the next rung to climb. He's number three. Go get him. Oh, I mean, he was threat. He was just, this is why maybe we are getting not so intellectual. Yeah. They're, the, these, they're not based in fact. A lot of these are just based pure, purely on emotion and like you talked about, the, the, the possible fears of things that could happen. Yeah. Mm. The tangled web. So we will uh, continue the discussion in just a few minutes. Um, we'll be getting into uh, political discourse. What's really going on? And why are so many people maybe not so into the facts but into the just – into the arguments? Uh, Let's get to the headlines, Terry. Anything going on around the world we need to worry about? There is. Thanks, Matt. Severe weather threatening the south, resulting in a massive storm system stretching from the south to the mid-Atlantic. More than 27 million Americans are in the path of more dangerous weather today. At least eight reported tornadoes tore through the south Tuesday, including one that touched down in Scuba, Mississippi, and made it all the way to Alabama, leveling homes and leaving a path of destruction and power outages that stretched across both states. Rankin County, Mississippi firefighters rescued at least eight people from rising floodwaters. The same storm system fueled tornadoes in the south also created blizzard-like conditions across the central plains. A whiteout in southwestern Minnesota prompted a travel ban, while more than a foot of snow fell in parts of Nebraska. So that will continue today, they expect, with the storm system moving. Uh, The family of Oregon occupier who died in a confrontation with authorities near the National Wildlife Refuge in Oregon last week is accusing the FBI and local police of covering up the circumstances around the incident. Relatives of Robert Lavoie Finnegan, who was shot and killed by law enforcement during the altercation, have said that the shooting was unjustified and that FBI and state police were seeking to manipulate and mislead the media in the aftermath. The FBI did not respond except to point to a video of the melee that has been released. Finnegan's family disputes that he was reaching or holding his gun at the time when he was shot by police. Have you seen that video, Matt? Yeah, totally. It's like 15 minutes long, the one that I saw. Yeah, if you watch, yeah, the whole, like, chase of the cars and then the, yeah. Well, that was my thing. I I start the 15-minute video, and do I want to fast-forward this to watch a guy get shot? (laughs) I mean, really, this is what I want to do right now? It's it's interesting, though, that, but they have such a completely different view. Yes. Yeah. The family is getting uh, reports from people, I think, who were there. Right. Who were there getting arrested, like the Bundys oh. and others. And then, then you have the FBI report. Right. And the so, video. And, the, and then they have the video, which it's from high up and it's yeah. hard. To, the police say it's one thing. The FBI says it's, you know, so. But you, you could have predicted that anyway. Oh, yeah. Right. They're not going to just take it and move no. on. Uh, Michigan Governor Rick Snyder seeking $30 million in state funding to help Flint residents in an emergency over uh, the city's lead-contaminated water supply. Snyder plans to unveil a proposal today and outline it to lawmakers next week as part of his 2016-2017 budget proposal. According to a statement from the governor's office, the relief would cover the estimated portion of customers' utility bills for waters that have been or will be used for drinking, cooking, bathing, and washing hands. Customers would still have to pay for water used to flush toilets, water lawns, and wash clothes. I'm not sure how you separate that bill. Uh, is this water for flushing or is this water for drinking? It's just one pipe coming into the house. That's so flushing you... water right there. So it says Flint residents will not have to pay for water they cannot drink, the Republican governor said in a statement to the AP late Tuesday. Today in Washington, 
um, some uh, congressional hearings on this whole situation well, will happen. Well, that's $30 million just for to pay for the water that, yeah. that you're not drinking or that you're drinking. But it's going to cost $60 million, supposedly to fix the pipage. Once they figure out where the pipes are. I was reading over the weekend that when they did this, the city didn't actually like keep records. Right, they were kept on uh, three by five index cards, and those have been lost. So. Uh, and though some of these pipes are belong to the owners of buildings, which yes. the city is probably not. So the, is not the city is going to take care of the ones in the street delivering the water. But when you're when it comes from the buildings or the home to the main supply, that's up to the homeowner or building owner. Oh, this owner. is a mess. But you know what? I bet we'll see a lot more of this coming down the line. Because yes. every old city is going to have these and, pipes. And as someone pointed out yesterday, you can't sell your house if you live in Flint. Oh, there you go. Because your your pipes are bad. So who's going to buy a house? Well, and your yeah, your water and will your poison horrible. people. So you're stuck. You can't if you want to move, you can't. Ah. Oh. And then you got to pay for something. And you they're low can't income. Afford. I think forty to fifty percent of the people that are in this area are that are being impacted by this are low, low, low income. Right. Tragic. It's crazy. But this is the – and so they're trying to figure something out. And it would have cost $9,000 to put the proper chemicals in for three months to make sure all the pipes were lined with the chemicals yeah. so the lead doesn't leach. A $9,000 fix. Yeah. Instead, they, it's going to cost them about millions. So. <sighs> um, in lighter news, yeah. the NFL's new Thursday night football deal is done. And once again, the league has jacked up the cost of the TV license. In a nutshell, CBS and NBC have agreed to share the Thursday night schedule with the NFL Network in 2016 and 2017. CBS gets five games early in the season. NBC gets five games later in the season. And the NFL Network gets all the games for the season that they will simulcast those those but games and then they'll have you're uh, mad the well it's funny that you have this product <laughs> you always get mad about the NFL that's and, what and you get mad about the NFL package it was on just on CBS and then they simulcast on the NFL network and then later in the season it's just on the NFL network every year they've had this for several years they raise the price and people pay it it's the same product but they keep raising yeah. the price 45 million so it says the total licensing fee is $450 million. Wow. That's $45 million a game. That's crazy. It does not include the streaming rights to the game. So, They're going to sell those separately. So, so the, the, the NFL will make just billions on the rights of their shows, their programming. Yeah. Streaming or And, and this cable. is just for the Thursday night game. Oh, my heavens. Just it was, that one yeah. game. Oh, it's that not be, Monday Night Football. Like it's not Sunday. It's that one night a week, and they're paying. They're going to get forty-five million a game. Well, so do you, you know that that means your cable provider will be charging you about a million a game? Yes, they raise your price. That's that's what this comes down to: is the price of the individual yeah, TV mad. connection in your house goes up. Also, the streaming rights are going to be sold uh, separately. Variety says it'll be a global deal, which could include Apple, Google, Facebook, or Amazon. How cool. What if all of a sudden Google is providing NFL Thursday night games? This one provided by Google. This one provided by YouTube. Until they start charging for it and then people will be all up in arms. But my my son taught me something very interesting yesterday. You can get anything for free, Dad. You got to find it. Just got to search. But you heard about Kenny Stabler, right? I did. Uh, NFL great. Quarterback Ken Stabler had a severe... uh, CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, um, which has to be determined post-mortem. But another great NFL player. Brain damage due to concussions. Brain damage due to concussions and 
And that was back in the day, too. Kenny Stabler played when, you know, they'd spit in your face. They don't do that anymore. Crazy talk. Uh, we are going to take a break, folks. When we come back, we're going to be um, joined by David uh, Nios, who is going to be talking to us about an article he wrote um, about political discourse. It's getting dangerously anti-intellectual. And uh, David is a humanist, uh, and humanists uh, believe about the, the idea that we need to maybe focus more on just the data, folks, the intellectual side of it, not get so caught up in uh, the emotional side of it, or sometimes even introducing God into the equation. Uh, wanted to get his side of this because he's he's got an interesting point about what might be happening with Donald Trump. Um, stick with us. Interesting, interesting guest coming up. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, this political season has uh, perhaps brought more controversy and liveliness than any other presidential race uh, for many, many years. You know, with a wild card like Donald Trump um, abstaining from his comments on either another person's appearance, their gender, their ethnicity, and uh, also the unconventional plans of Bernie Sanders, there has been no short supply of entertainment But what about substance? What do these potential future leaders of America believe about the most crucial issues that face our nation? And have you been noticing that uh, a lot of times you'll sit there, you'll hear them talking, and you won't necessarily hear a lot of substance, right? You won't hear – you'll hear a lot of rhetoric. You'll hear a lot of, um, I guess, I don't know, just suggestive, motivational, supposed – um, thoughts, but not necessarily how they're going to do it. And uh, so our next guest, uh, Dr., uh, David Neosi, um, is, uh, has written an article about political discourse and it's how it's getting dangerously anti-intellectual. And uh, David is um, the, an attorney and legal director of the American Humanist Association. And uh, he's here today to help us understand a little bit uh, more what he think is, thinks is going on. David, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hi, Matt. How are you? Good. How are you, David? Very good. Now, now talk to us. Uh, teach us um, what, uh, for those out in listener land, teach us about what is a humanist. Oh, sure. Humanism is a uh, life stance. It's a philosophy that approaches life from a natural standpoint uh, without using any superstition or supernatural belief. Like, and uh, even religion, right? It's just kind of a, a, a religious neutral belief set. Right. It doesn't believe in any theistic belief, because uh, theism is a supernatural concept. So uh, when it comes to public policy and politics, uh, humanists believe that humans can solve human problems. We're not going to solve human problems by calling out to God and praying, and we we don't blame uh, natural disasters on, uh, you know, America uh, making bad choices according to God, that sort of thing. It approaches life from a reason-based standpoint. And one of the things you're seeing um, in this, uh, this presidential election is there's Donald Trump is, is has been skyrocketing in um, in favor and and uh, and others are 
they're they're gathering. He's gathering more power, and it's not, I guess it's not even just Donald. It's it's a lot of these candidates. But I guess part of what is maybe going on, and you help us try to understand this, is it's it's almost the a lot of these candidates are are not basing any of this in an intellectual necessarily pursuit as much as it is just purely more emotional. That's right. And, uh, you know, the concept of anti-intellectualism has been a current running through American culture uh, pretty much from the beginning. But we've really seen uh, kind of a high tide of it in uh, the last decade or so. It's just gotten to the point where politics uh, doesn't even involve any substantive discussion anymore. Uh, We've got, uh, you know, emotional appeals. We've got uh, the use of fear, lots of references to good and evil. Everything can be just broken down into, you know, us, good, them, evil, that sort of thing. Demonization of groups, militarism, hyper-patriotism. You know, patriotism is one thing, but, you know, this hyper-patriotism that borders on nationalism, uh, you know, American superiority. This is the kind of rhetoric that we're hearing instead of any serious discussion of, you know, health care. How, how are we going to make sure that everyone can have access to decent health care? You know, uh, economic concerns, corporate power, things like this. Uh, you know, th- these are relevant issues that should be discussed and on the table, but instead we're hearing lots of just uh, emotional rhetoric. And it's um... – is it the tail wagging the dog? Is it the dog wagging the tail? Are the politicians responding to the people? Uh, there, there's a great point in that in the article that we're discussing that um, you know Donald comes out and talks about how we need to close down the southern border and build a wall, and he'll have the Mexicans build the wall. But it's so that concept so resonates, it, right? yeah, and, and pay for it exactly. And um, yet yeah, th- those ideas resonate with the folks up in New Hampshire that don't have a border issue. Um, with Mexico. That's right. Uh, Something like 2% of the New Hampshire population is Latino, so it's not like there's any kind of uh, problem uh, up there uh, that would be solved by building a a wall, uh, you know, down in Arizona. So it it makes no sense. You you have to believe that uh, Trump is giving the people what they want. Uh, The the real question is, why is this what people want? Why don't people seem to want a substantive discussion. Or, you know, the, the other side of it is maybe they do, but the media is not delivering that discussion. Hmm. So uh, it's a problem that really needs to be analyzed and uh, figured out. And and you're seeing this in other arguments, right, um, in, in kind of even environmental discussions, in, uh, you know, the ozone layer, in, um, I mean, it, it can almost come down in any type of Discussion can become polarized between intellectuals and maybe just emotionals. Well, that's one way of posturing it, I guess. Uh, You know, this kind of environment certainly is ripe for conspiracy theories and for uh, theories that completely reject science, Uh, the the rejection of uh, global warming. Uh, is a good example. Uh, You know, the scientific community is not disputing uh, the issue of global warming or the the fact that, uh, you know, humans are causing it. 
But uh, in the political realm, though, it's a highly disputed topic. Yeah. Same thing with evolution. Uh, evolution is not a controversial subject within the scientific community. There's no question uh, about the validity of uh, evolution by natural selection as the fundamental basis of biology. It's, it's the foundation upon which biology is understood nowadays. But, you know, you venture into the realm of politics, uh, where anti-intellectualism is just uh, rampant, uh, you, you see that this is something that actually has to be discussed, and large segments of the country completely reject the idea that uh, you, you know humans evolve from uh, uh, lower species. Is this so? Is this an intellectual issue? I mean, I because again, I this is Brigham Young University. We have very strong beliefs, uh, spiritual kind of religious beliefs, uh, theistic beliefs, and and yet you can understand good science and mesh it with faith and your own belief system. Uh, and I've, I've even noticed in any in our religion or in any religion, you can see that some people maybe that are more uh, learned might be able to bridge some of these ideas um, and keep their faith, and others might just have to choose an either-or. Well, it, it might come down to uh, exactly what kind of faith you're talking about. Uh, I think uh, when you're talking about uh, uh, believing in an interventionist God— uh, it requires a little bit of departmentalization in your own mind to say, well, that there is this God that might answer prayers and, and might uh, uh, involve himself, I'll use the male pronoun, uh, in human affairs, but we're going to disregard that when we talk about uh, science and public policy, and we're, we're going to just uh, structure public policy around what is rational and what is uh, reason-based. Hmm, yeah. uh, people can departmentalize that way, but I think uh, the, the important thing for people of reason, whether you call yourself a theist or a non-theist, is that it is important to keep that uh, emotional, uh, spiritual type of uh, belief system away from policy making. When we're making policy for a pluralistic country with a wide variety of religious beliefs, we can't allow the majority religious belief to yeah. impose their views on everyone else. Well, yeah, exactly. I and and I mean, you're still a politician for the people, right? And the people are going to be different. They're That's with different right. values. And so if you're going to represent that, you need to represent the people. Absolutely. And look at what's happening in this election, the exact opposite. Uh, Ted Cruz just the other day uh, spoke to a crowd. He's running for president of the United States, of all the people, and he's talking about the, the importance of awakening the body of Christ mm -hmm. in American politics. Yeah. I mean, well, where are we going here? Well, but, I, but you know what I think, though? And it, it, you tell me. Is it not this? I mean, it is. That's overtly theistic. But it, it seems like the same to me as Hillary Clinton going to the South and then all of a sudden picking up a Southern drawl. She's she's trying to she's trying to communicate to the audience she's she's targeting. Well, certainly, right? uh, whether I would call that anti-intellectual or perhaps uh, just a, a little bit uh, disingenuous. Uh, the, you know, what you can call it what you yeah. will, but to really uh, 
as Cruz has done and other uh, other candidates as well to just uh, brashly declare that that uh, you know Christianity is going to be front and center in not only his personal beliefs but in his policy making mm-hmm. is a little scary for those of us who happen to not be Christians. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, and again, and th- I guess this has got to be in a way for you and others or that that are not Christian. Um it's got to be um unsettling to think that you're it's just almost this is escalating that the that the rhetoric around some of this is escalating and you're you're maybe even i don't know you you could now become a target as a loser because you don't believe the same way that's absolutely true and i think a lot of people uh, are beginning to realize that uh you know the the religious right if you want to call it that has been kind of on the march since Jerry Falwell back in the early 80s, and a lot of people thought that it was just a passing phase, that certainly this involvement of not just Christianity, but fundamentalist Christianity in American politics would certainly fade sooner or later. But it seems with each election cycle, uh, it's only magnified. Uh, You have to wonder, where is it going? Is it finally going to burn out, or is it going to take us to some terrible place? Because (laughs) it certainly doesn't seem to be uh, moving Moving us in the direction of reason-based, human-based public policy. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I get it as a being a, a religious minority too. That in with the LDS Church, it's a scary thing to when people, you know, do see you as strange, and so, right. and on either side of the equation, on either either side of the game. Let's take a break. Again, we're speaking with David Neosi um, from uh, the AmericanHumanist.org. Um, he's, he's trying to help us understand that some of the intellectual or the anti-intellectual rhetoric, or in a way anti—it um, doesn't have to just be intellectual, but some of just the more religious uh, extremist rhetoric that uh, we might be seeing in these election debates and discussions— It's going to have a negative effect on certain people. And even if you believe in God, maybe you need to think of everybody. Uh, We'll take a break, folks. Come back. Continue this discussion about political discourse right here on The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. everybody to the Matt Townsend show. Uh, joining us on the phone is uh, David Neosi, who is um, works for the American Humanist Association, and he is on. He's been trying to talk to us about political discourse and how it might be getting da- or it is getting dangerously anti-intellectual. Um, and David, as a humanist, is um, basically is believes that we, we there's data, there's there's information. Not everybody out there believes in God. Not everybody out there believes in a theist view of life. And yet the rhetoric we hear in our campaigns, very, uh, very kind of God-friendly, God-centered. Um, and we, we, we might need to be careful. David, is that really your point, is that we need to make sure we're inclusive and understanding what everybody believes and try to take a more... I guess, intellectual approach versus just emotional approach. 
Well, sure. There, there's really two things. From a religious standpoint, it's important that government be neutral on right. the issue of religion. Uh, humanists uh, don't expect the government to be anti-religion. They certainly don't expect government to be uh, advocating for non-belief. Yeah. But we do expect government to be neutral and not to be advocating for theistic belief either. It's very easy for government to be neutral if it just does not take sides on religious issues. Now, as far as public policy goes, once you remove theism or religious favoritism from policymaking, uh, then what you're left with is what policy should be based on. Reason, rational thinking, logic, uh, empirical uh, analysis of uh, what we need. And of course, there's room for debate. There's lots of debate about what, uh, uh, where that road should lead, but that road should be based within those parameters mm. of reason and rational thinking. Well, uh, duh. <laughs> Doesn't that, I mean, that makes sense. And so th- the way I see it and bridge it in my view, like you said, we have to kind of compartmentalize or departmentalize. And um, I mean, I I can have a theistic view and still find the reason and the rational thinking and the logic and the data to validate what I can validate. And whatever I can't validate with data, then I just have to take and and try to either find an argument or understand that I can't validate that. And that's absolutely right. And it, as you stated, it seems kind of obvious, uh, you know, duh, isn't that the way it should be approached? But, but we there don't, are many do we? who disagree. Oh, yeah. There are many who, uh, as I pointed out earlier, with issues like evolution and climate change, there are those who, since the facts fly in the face of their biblical literalist view, uh, they disregard the facts and right. stick to their views. And in many parts of the country, those religious views are a majority view. So we have entire segments of the congressional delegation that are more loyal to their biblical literalist view than to rational public policy. And do you think that that's what's spawning um, a lot of the the more harsh rhetoric, or maybe even just the, the I don't know, the, the rise of a Donald Trump? I think that's a big part of it. I think it would be a mistake to attribute the entire Trump phenomenon to uh, religiously motivated anti-intellectualism, because anti-intellectualism is not only based in religion. I think religion right. is a big part of it. In fact, Richard Hofstadter, back in the uh, 1960s, wrote, wrote a Pulitzer Prize-winning book about anti-intellectualism in American life, and about uh, two-thirds of it was uh, concentrating on the issue of religion and religious fundamentalism. So it is a big part of it. But there is another part as well, and you know, that has to do with uh, racism, uh, views uh, that uh, just uh, are uh, aggressive towards outsiders, uh, hyper-patriotism, you know, uh, tribalism is a natural human impulse. So there are those who feel that, uh, you know, it's easy to ramp up militarism and nationalism through emotional rhetoric Hmm. that's not based in reason. And that really has very little to do with religion, except religion is used uh, to to promote patriotism. But uh, so there are other aspects to it. And of course, uh, economic hard times make people angry, uh, having little to do with religion. But when people are angry, they're not thinking 
rationally and they want to lash out. And somebody like Trump, a demagogue, certainly resonates with people who are in that position sometimes. Well, and it seems like, I mean, another target of some of this movement is also the media. And it it seems like historically many would argue that the media were more intellectuals. And there's almost a backlash about that, uh, about the media or toward the media. Well, the, the media is kind of an interesting phenomenon because the media is itself anti-intellectual often. You, you know, it's much easier to uh, run stories on the news that just uh, attract, uh, you know, if it bleeds, it leads, yeah. that sort of thing, rather than having a serious policy discussion. But at the same time, the politicians point to the media as the evil uh, mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the liberal media that uh, is uh, running contrary to uh, uh, what the majority wants. So it, 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 the, the media is in a position where it, it, nobody's happy with it. Uh, the, those of us who want intellectual discussion and serious discussion point to it as the problem, and the demagogues point to it as, uh, you know, the, the uh, liberal fountainhead. So uh, <laughs> go figure. Yeah, it, it, it's uh, it's. It's a tangled web, isn't it? It certainly is. Is Where does this go um, from here? And what do we just as average people, again, BYU, um, we're believers, and yet I totally, I believe that we need to be incredibly careful about um, being inclusive and understanding that everybody has their views and and honor those. And it doesn't mean you can't have yours. What am I supposed to do? What is the average Joe Blow that's sitting in the country, what are we supposed to do about this? Well, it, it really is a, a complicated question with a with uh, no easy answer. I would uh, just say, uh, as a quick book plug, that I do address this exact issue in my book. It's called "Fighting Back the Right," hmm. and uh, the, you know what, what I do is I, I try to analyze where this anti-reason comes from, and we've had some of the discussion here. As far as how to fight back against this anti-reason, you know, the the first step is to recognize it and to uh, really discuss it with people and put it as an issue that's front and center. You know, there are a lot of issues out there, but one of the issues that America has to confront very directly is the fact that discourse itself has been derailed so much. And then uh, I point in the book to several uh, paths out of this mess. And, you know, one of it is to insist on focusing on uh, reason-based, human-based public policy and to consider where the anti-reason is coming from. And I would suggest it's not just the religious right. right. No, right. That is part of it. But, but the know, racism is a huge part right now. Right. The corporate sector mm-hmm. it really controls uh, the American system. And, you know, does the corporate sector benefit by a public that is uh, disabled, that, that is dysfunctional? Uh, I would suggest that the, the corporate sector benefits greatly by, uh, you, you know, a, a population that is unable to grapple with uh, policy issues and discuss them intelligently. That allows the, uh, you know, the powers that be to uh, run the puppet show. Mm-hmm. Well, and even as you're even as you're speaking, David, I can you can almost just tell that there's certain people that have this immediate knee-jerk reaction 
to what you're saying and without even without even internalizing what you're saying and and letting it just take place and I, I believe that if you just let the ideas in, they don't have to they're not gonna all float. It does I mean they're not gonna all stick and 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 matter to you. But you can be strong enough to hear what you're saying or what somebody that has a different belief is saying, and you don't have to agree, but you can hear it. You That's can right. even appreciate what you do agree with it. But so many just are reactive and knee-jerk responses, which is anti – it's anti-growth. It's anti-thought. It's anti-intellectual. You're absolutely right. And, you know, those of us, uh, we can disagree on public policy on a lot of things. Some of us should think, you know, uh, taxes should go up. Some might think they should go down. Some might think we should spend more on this or less on this, and we can disagree. Right. But we can at least all agree in recognizing when anti-reason is being thrown at us, right. when politicians are using ad hominem attacks instead of, uh, you know, discussing issues uh, reasonably. You know, when Trump comes out and calls his opponents losers, uh, you know, that, that should be a flag. There's a lot of things that happen in American politics that should raise flags. And those of us who disagree on many issues, if we can at least agree when flags should go up, uh, that in itself would allow us yeah. to have a discourse within a more rational framework. No, I agree. I think and, – and I, what's funny is – I think most people agree that he shouldn't say those things, except they justify it by the fact that he's supposedly talking strong about other things. You know what well, I mean? They have to rationalize it some way, right? Because if you, they don't. I mean, people. He's not. Donald's not really anyone's second choice. Well, if you if you look at something like Trump and you interpret brashness and rudeness as strength, then that, that that's an issue that needs to be discussed. Yeah, no, exactly. That's exactly why we wanted to do this topic is because there's something else going on, and and I think you hit it. There's there's people that despite regardless of their theism, their ra- but it might be racism, it might be hyper-patriotism, it might be economic hard times, it might be corporations, it might be... I mean, you hear all of the news today, from Oregon's, the holdout up in Oregon, to um, the shootings in Ferguson, to all everything is gets skewed on along these lines. Yeah, well, when people feel helpless, that's when they turn to a demagogue, because demagogues have easy answers, and they promote themselves. There's usually kind of a narcissistic streak uh, going on. You know, there's a, a politician who's kind of an egomaniac, but, you know, egomaniacs claim to know it all and claim to have all the answers. And when people feel helpless, that they just don't know what to do, they, they don't really see a way out. Uh, that's when they turn to people like that. And that's uh, what happens when anti-intellectualism uh, is dominating the system. Yeah. You have a population that feels helpless, and uh, this is the result. Well, I, I appreciate your insight on it. And this show, we're gonna, we will try our very best to, to not be part of the problem, but instead part of the solution there. So, David Neosi, thank you so much. And again, I, I would suggest go go find that book, um, Fighting Back Against the Right. And it doesn't mean you can't have values, folks, and beliefs, but um, let's do it in a way that we can lift humans. 
and uh, and make sure everyone's treated fairly and equally. We appreciate you. David Neosi um, uh, from the AmericanHumanist.org. Um, interesting stuff. What a great – I mean, again, whatever your belief – and I, I don't believe everything David believes, but, uh, man, he's got a right to say it, and we've got to be careful. you got to be careful. Moderation, folks. Rein it in. You can have your beliefs, and even if you want at times express them, but know that you're, you also have to be inclusive of those that don't think your way too. You know, you don't have to lose your rights, but you also don't have to trample everyone else's. We'll take a break, folks. Come back, continue this discussion in just a few minutes. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Remember, you can have your value system. You can believe in God. You can be very faithful, very, uh, you know, very driven by your belief system. And, And simultaneously, you can also represent your people in your constituency and, and do so and, and still represent nobly, I believe, an atheist and a Christian and a Muslim and a Hispanic and an African-American and, uh, you know, somebody from Syria that uh, found their way to the United States. We can represent everybody. And the minute we start polarizing by our faith, I think you're actually going against faith. Like how many times have we heard and been so uh, overwhelmed by ISIS and Islamic extremism? So what is the difference between Islamic extremism and Christian extremism? And I think that's what we were just discussing with our guest. Extremism is going to be problematic. It doesn't mean that you can't have an absolute belief in a God. You can. And still abide by the laws and the rules of the land. You can do both. And in fact, I I would argue that a strong theistic view of life should dramatically and does dramatically enhance your ability to be a human. Some would say in order to be a human, you'd have to nullify a god. Well, no. You, I, I think it enhances your ability. One of my favorite quotes is by Teilhard de Chardin, who was a Jesuit um, priest, and he said, We are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. So we don't need to dichotomize it between being a humanist and being a theist. I mean, the the definitions of the world would make us dichotomize it and choose an either-or. The reality is you can be both. Some of the most incredibly brilliant men I know are profound believers of God. And if you think of the Gandhis, the Buddha, if you think of Mother Teresa, if you think of these people that have been these thought leaders in our world, they were able to manage both. So can we just please get a candidate that really 
isn't using God to get elected, but instead is using God to serve people. That would be profound. We'll take a break, folks. That's hour number one of the Matt Townsend Show. Doing what we can to help you find the good in the world. We'll be back next hour. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. This is the show, folks, where we give you the information, the tools you need to uh, live a healthier, happier life, to live longer, love stronger, and uh, if you're a high school student, to not yell airball. Airball. But it's not even high school anymore. These, It's getting crazy what these the benches are doing now. Just the bench. Uh, what's the school that has the crazy bench? Oh, is it yeah. Davidson? I think it's yeah. They have they reenact certain. Uh huh. It's hilarious. Scene. I, I've seen them reenact scenes of movies. All yeah. kinds of things they do there on the bench. So in Wisconsin, there was uh, the high school association. There basically banned schools from saying offensive things. I mean, offensive meaning airball. If somebody hits an airball, have you seen Arizona State's curtain of distraction? Uh-uh. Oh, and then they opened the curtain. They opened yeah. the curtain. They had, uh, who was it, Michael Phelps? Yeah, in his, his Speedo. His Speedo and his, uh, they, like, uh, there was a debate on whether the kid, who was probably, you know, 19, does he even know who Michael Phelps is? No. And and so Phelps had to stand there with all of his medals on just to confirm who he was. <laughs> <laughs> and he has a little swim cap on and a Speedo. Uh. So is it is it unsportsmanlike to, to yell airball? When somebody like Ben shoots an air ball, that has never happened. You've never shot an air ball. Nope. Okay. Because according to the Wisconsin Interscholastic Athletic Association, it it doesn't think that the kids should be doing that. So it's it's banned that from the games, the high school games. Not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to have cheers that are, you know, that put down the other team. Sportsmanship. Now, then others in BYU Sports Nation, we've talked to them about it, that come on, you got to let these people play. That's part of being a fan is taunting the other team. It does get out of control. Oh, go to a BYU-Utah game. I felt dirty (laughs) at a BYU-Utah game, and I have been to both schools. I have a degree from both schools, and at the very end of that game, I didn't like either school. I was violated. So now I just choose to watch Utah State because they don't do that. Yeah, they do. I know they do. Everybody does it. The whole crowd gets up and does a a, a coordinated chant. Yeah. So if if we're going to teach sportsmanship, let's figure out what it is and how to teach it. And uh, Dr. Jennifer Waldron will be joining us. She's going to teach us about what is sportsmanship really? Where do we draw the line? When I picked up my child from school yesterday, he was so excited because they were playing their rivals in basketball last night, and he was talking about the fact that they had a really good cheer made up for the other school. He was psyched, and the entire gym did this cheer. It was He was just could not be more excited. But to me, that's part of sportsmanship. 
You got to love your team. Now you don't. You don't need to put the other team down. But that's where it turn. It ends up. Yeah. So we need. Well. Yeah. That's where we. That's why I invented what I invented. Because if all of a sudden you're sitting in a stadium and some guy starts taunting negatively someone, taste it. Beautiful. There you go. Problem solved. Sportsmanship fixed. You know, hey. By the way, did you hear about? Did you hear about the uh, the taser that the um, that was used? You won't believe this story. This is where did it go? Ah, oh, where did it go? I just read it. Isn't it there? I can't find it. You know why? It's because it's carrot cake day. Ooh, distracted and, by carrot cake. And I haven't. I I've, have, been, I've been there. Ha, you've been where? Distracted by carrot cake. <laughs> Don't you hate it when you want to talk about a story and you can't find it? Anyway. We'll find it. It's really good, and it involves a taser. <laughs> it's hard to get think, a good taser Do you story. think a taser fixes sportsmanship? Yeah. Well, it did. Okay. The thing about my taser from Tasers R Us, it fixes everything. Tasers also fry bacon. They help criminals see straight. And Ben, of course, could find it. Cute little Ben. Sheriff's office. Listen to this. Man tased after setting fire to his Burger King uniform. Tased it. It's it's like in the title. It's in the title and it's underlined. Yeah, it's underlined. It's in the title. Yeah. I think the Burger King was throwing me off. Okay. Deputies arrested a 24-year-old Florida man Wednesday who they said set fire to his uniform after being fired from Burger King. I don't know if he set fire to his uniform because some of those uniforms would set fire to themselves. They, they've made leaps and bounds in polyester. It's not all flammable. <laughs> well, the, the, they have, except then all that fry grease. Okay. After you like, work a shift or like two. You yeah. can't just leave your fry grease uniform on the ground in a ball or it's going to it's a, it could spontaneously combust exactly it's, it's like almost a renewable energy it totally is and it's like if you had just varnished the back patio okay i can see that too and you got to take care of your varnish because that could combust too hmm. anyway after uh, according to reports witnesses told authorities that timothy Alejandro Ortiz, after being fired, walked out of the fast food restaurant and set his hat and uniform shirt on fire. Those items were supposed to be returned to Burger King after termination. According to authorities, he left the burning items on the ground and walked away before getting into several arguments with the managers and customers who saw what happened and they called the sheriff's department. When the sheriffs arrived, um, Ortiz was later arrested on charges of damage to property, resisting an officer without without violence and disorderly conduct. But they had to tase the dude. Tase it. What's the lesson learned? Let's ask Ben. Ben, what did you learn from this story? Burn your uniform in private. Oh, man. That not, could be a lesson for Not that. even close. His whole problem was no. people saw him lighting his uniform See, on this fire. is the problem because we're trying to talk sportsmanship today eventually, but how is – Ben didn't get the point. The point is, Ben, you turn your uniform back into the big Burger King. Oh. Back into but, the BK. Turn it back in. Hmm. Don't go out and burn it. Don't burn it in private. 
It's not private, public. It's not. It's hard. I still don't get it. I know. I know. Believe me, I know. Thank you for finding that. It was right there on the top of my list. It's on the top. It's underlined. It's <laughs> more obvious. But it's fine. It's fine. It's tasers. You know what? It's because I don't have my carrot cake on board. Do you like carrot cake? I do. Do you like the cake or do you like just the frosting? Yes. Mm. I'd like half the cake okay. and all the frosting. The same quantity? Mm-hmm. Like the, the, the yeah. thickness of the cake and Just the thickness of the cake. frosting is the same? Yeah. Wow. It's a lot of sugar. I, it is. It, make, it gives me the shakes. But in a good way. Yeah. But sometimes you want the shakes. Mmm. <laughs> okay. I am the healthiest human ever known to man. That's what we're trying to do on the show, folks. Give you the information you need. If you want the shakes, take half the cake and all the frosting. This segment brought to you by... Onset Diabetes. Onset, the Diabetes Association of America. Uh, Let's get to the headlines, Terry. Anything going on around the rest of the world? Thanks, Matt. Senator Rand Paul suspending his presidential bid, according to a statement from his campaign early this morning. Today, I will end where I begin, ready and willing to fight for the cause of liberty. The statements are at red. The Kentucky senator finished fifth in the Iowa caucuses on Monday and has consistently polled at less than 5% in New Hampshire. So his fortunes were not looking up. Also, he has a challenge to his Senate seat in Kentucky from the mayor of Lexington, Jim Gray. He needs to focus on that. Yeah. Pay attention. Donald Trump claimed that Ted Cruz stole his Iowa win in a tweet this morning. In a uh, first version of it, Trump said Ted Cruz didn't win Iowa. He illegally stole it. That is why all the polls were so wrong anyway. He got more votes than anticipated. Bad. This is all from Twitter. So he deleted that one, fixed his grammar, took out the word illegally in a new version, the tweet uh, in a new version that the tweet that, that's up right now. So he took out illegally and just he, said he stole it. He didn't it. illegally steal it. He just stole it. But that means Donald, the supreme leader, yes, was played. Apparently. So apparently he's not as great of a negotiator as he claims. In other news, Texas health officials confirmed on Tuesday the first case of a patient acquiring the Zika virus through sexual transmission. The patient was infected with the virus after having sexual contact with an ill individual who returned from a country where Zika, the Zika virus is present, the Dallas mm. County Health and Human Services said in a statement. The troubling news confirms suspicions that the mosquito-borne virus can also be transmitted via sex. But then, but who it impacts are, I mean, are the kids. There are some symptoms the adults. So if will this person got pregnant, that yeah. would harm their child. Possibly. Oh man, they're still trying to yeah, suss trying all to that out in Brazil. This. It's kind of a new situation, but uh, these are some of the findings they're having. On Tuesday, the House voted 241 to 186 to override President Obama's veto of a bill that would gut the Affordable Care Act and end federal funding for Planned Parenthood. The vote fell 50 votes short of the two-thirds majority Republicans needed to counter Obama's veto. Republican leaders were expected the de- expecting the defeat, but they painted the exercise as a selling point for electing a Republican president in November. The president is the only person standing in the way of what the American people want, said Representative Tom Price of Georgia. Hmm. Republican. So our job now is to stand up for them, to demonstrate for them who is on their side. 
Representative Chris Van Holden, a Democrat, the ranking Democrat on the Price House Budget Committee, said it was fitting that the vote was on Groundhog's Day since the House Republicans had voted to repeal Obamacare 62 times <laughs> and uh, before and also voted 11 other times to defund Planned Parenthood. It probably breaks all records in wasting taxpayer time and money. <laughs> so you have both sides of the argument there. Yes. Sounds like more of the same. Fair and balanced. Uh, Former Raider quarterback Ken Stabler, who died in July, had the degenerative brain condition likely caused by repeated blows to the head. An autopsy found that on a scale of 1 to 4, Stabler had a high stage 3 of the chronic traumatic, uh, what's called CTE. Do you know how to endo... You said it before. Encephalopathy. You nailed it. Good job. So CTE, the degenerative brain disease. Uh, Stabler died on July 8th of colon cancer at the age of 69. Over several months, Stabler's brain was dissected for clues to help understand his final years and the impact of CTE on the brain. Uh, A former athlete, Stabler is one of the highest profile athletes to have been discovered to have developed the disease. Mm. And this story will be ongoing. It's Uh, something because it's it's Super Bowl week, it gets a lot of attention. But it's every, it's seriously now, every other week, you're getting a new past star that has been diagnosed. The uh, uh, the movie with uh, Will Smith that yeah. came out about concussions. concussions. He uh, the the doctor he was portraying in that movie was interviewed yesterday on CBS News, and he says that he feels that the vast majority of current players will probably end up suffering from CTE. Uh, at what point is this just not worth it? I don't know. We'll I mean, to... especially now that the NFL signed. Their rights for the next yeah. season. We'll have to see. Dutch police have come up with a pretty crazy way of taking out drones. They want to use eagles. Oh. Law enforcement in the Netherlands is teaming up with a raptor training company to train the birds of prey to intercept quadrocopters, citing local media and video reports. Oh, that's cool. Wired mag- Wired.com reports that eagles could be a safer way to take down illegal drones since the other two options involving shooting them down or jamming their sensors would cause them to plummet to the earth, and you have some. So I guess the e- so what? Well, let me get this straight. We're at we're we're going to take the uh, the the bird, the honored bird of the of well, the of, eagle of this country of this country. in the Netherlands. It's a bird. Well, no. Oh, but to me, this is a great idea, and you're going to give it a job. Other than just sitting on a perch on Trump's desk, okay, you're going to give it a job <laughs> to go get a drone and yeah. bring it back. That's cool. Now, eagles have extremely long or strong legs and talons. Carbon fiber props spinning at full speed can easily cut human flesh. Sure. What they're saying, though, is it's not clear if the birds will need extra protection in order to do the job safely, <laughs> and they don't know what the effect on the birds will be. They'll do trials over the next few months. But there's video of an eagle <laughs> oh. coming down and just snatching Oh, you can totally see it. Except you could also see a video of the eagle coming down and then... There's just feathers. And there's just feathers everywhere. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah, and then a bald eagle. Different quite approach. Hmm. The problem is, once it's up there, you try to take it out. The the drone. I think that's cool. It's the drone's just going to fall as a lead rock to the earth, and whatever's underneath it's going to get crushed. Well, what could could anything? So you be, can't do that. Could anything be scarier than having an eagle chasing you? I don't know. That's shark? pretty scary. Well, I mean, on, on land, oh, on I'd land. take a shark on land any day. Okay. Yeah, you could take a shark because they can't. You can just shuck and jive around them. Right. Lateral movement. Yeah. is Definitely. They have a hard time. Favor. Work in the land. But a bird? Can you imagine an eagle with those talons coming down on you? Anyway, we're going to be talking sportsmanship up next, folks. Uh, You know, like let's say, it never happened to me, but let's say you're playing baseball. And all of a sudden everyone's like, easy out. Easy out. Do you, you know, is that rude? Is that bad sportsmanship? 
We'll be talking to an expert on the subject. Dr. Jennifer Waldron will be joining us, folks. Stick with us. Uh, How to teach your children to be a better sport. Good insight, I think, for all of us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends. Do you feel like you're in a stadium waiting for the kiss cam to come around and shine down on you? Hey, we are today talking about sportsmanship. Many of you may have heard um, that in Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Interscholastic Athletic Association is trying to correct the practice of game day taunts. And the students are not thrilled. Um, Are the taunts... All in good fun, you know, like when somebody shoots an air ball in a basketball game and the student body starts yelling, air ball, air ball. Is that bad sportsmanship or is that just part of the play, part of the game? Well, we wanted to to find out from an expert really what is good sportsmanship and how do you teach good sportsmanship? Some of the pushback on what's going on in Wisconsin is just – they felt like it was kind of more heavy-handed how the rules were being made instead of creating an open discussion around uh, sportsmanship, which may have been more valuable to keep everyone in the discussion. Our guest today is Dr. Jennifer Waldron. She's the Associate Professor of Physical Education and Leisure Services at the University of Northern Iowa. She joins us now live from Iowa to talk about sportsmanship. Dr. Waldron, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Are you there, Dr. Waldron? I am. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Great to have you. Hey, have have you recovered from uh, the whole Iowa caucus? We have, yes. Uh, Everything has moved on to New Hampshire now. (laughs) Yeah, good. Now you can breathe and just go cash all the checks. Exactly. (laughs) Not a bad thing for Iowa. Hey, we appreciate you being here. You've heard about what's going on in Wisconsin. Um, What what do you think about that? I mean, is is it to to yell air ball when – Another opposing student hits an air ball in basketball. Is that bad sportsmanship? I think um, it is connected to really the unique environment within sport. And so we, I talk about this issue with my, my college students. And one of the things I say is that, you know, if you were a doctor in, in surgery, you know, you wouldn't want someone <laughs> saying those sorts of taunts. Right. The surgeons cutting you open yeah. sort of thing. Um, and they all laugh and giggle. And then we talk about the unique environment in sport where we do expect these things to happen. Um, And so I think what is interesting is that many states, especially at the high school level, have similar policies in place for sport conduct and sportsmanship. Wisconsin is interesting because they do have that very clear list in their policies. And for whatever reason, they have decided in the last six months that they wanted to emphasize the – implementation of those particular policies. And, you know, I think that a lot of those areas are a gray area and things that we just have come to expect within the sport environment. Mm. No, totally. And and, and there's it seems like there is something amok. There's something going on nowadays. You tell me if you've seen this where, um, like, you might see an athlete stare someone down 
kind of stand over them or like do a crossover in basketball where they say, you know, I broke their ankles and the guy falls to the ground or whatever. And then he stares him down and then shoots a shot. That that seems to be happening a lot more than ever. Yes. And, and that's one of the things that um, many people talk about is that if we start at these sort of gray area levels of, you know, booing and, you know, maybe just a snide comment to your opponent once in a while, that they kind of open the door to these more serious behaviors um, that really are haunting, that are really demeaning, that are really problematic in a lot of ways. Um, but we do see an increase in that. Um, I think part of the reason is is the media, um, yeah. and we have however many sport networks that we can watch at any time. Right. Um, and then and we record so, it, right? And then we send it out on YouTube, and we put it out there, and it's everywhere for everyone to watch 100,000 times. Exactly, over and over and over again. And so these acts just become almost second nature, that people just expect it to happen. If I'm a high school player, then that's what I do because it's been role modeled to me over and over and over again. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I guess part of this is – Social media and other things are creating a culture where the taunting – but it almost seems different. And I guess crowds could be taunting as well. Um, But it seems different when it's on the court versus in the stadium. Is Um, there a distinction? um, I think that the distinction is that oftentimes the taunting that are in the stands is just this general sort of taunting, the booing, the – goodbye, that sort of thing. And so it's more general, not directed at a person necessarily. And the taunting that we see on the court is typically one-on-one, that, you know, it's one person going after or in the face of someone else. Um, We have heard stories, though, of how spectators and crowds have, you know, singled out one particular player uh, and been very demeaning and Mm -hmm. calling names. And, Rightly so, you know, media has picked up on that and people have picked up on that and have we have determined that that's problematic. Um, but the general sort of booing, the general sort of crowd behavior that we've come to expect, for most of us, we'd say, yeah, that's just part of the game and you learn to adapt to it. Mm. And we, I mean, it's, it, are the coaches, they seem to me to be the the most pivotal player here or person here. Be, remember the story last year of two I think like two defensive backs on a team that went and actually tackled or hit a referee and knocked him to the ground. Um, It was in Texas. And all of a sudden uh, you see that the coaches in my day, if if I taunted somebody, my coach would have my head. Right. And are the coaches loosening up? Are the coaches becoming more of the problem too? Well, I think that they are definitely a part of the sport environment. And, um, you know, coaches, a change has happened where even high school coaches are under an immense pressure to win. Um, And if they don't, then they know that their job is potentially on the line. Um, And so I think some of the coaches kind of go down that slippery slope of let's do this so we win and I get prestige and I can keep my job. I will say, though, that – you know, there are excellent coaches out there who are doing excellent work to make sure that their players are engaged in good sport conduct um, and respectful to opponents and refs and umpires. Mm. I also um, think that 
in the stands, though, if we're looking at spectator behavior, that that's not the coach's role. Right. Um, the coach has so many responsibilities yeah. to do while the competition's going on that the coach cannot monitor what's going on in the stands. Right. How many times have you seen a bad call and then people start throwing stuff down on the court and the coaches are doing everything they can now to stop fans? I mean, exactly. It's, it, exactly. It, yeah. That that I guess that's the arena. That's the the team owner. That's whoever's in charge of the space. Right. 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 And we can think about, you know, at the high school level, which is what's happening in Wisconsin, you know, parents playing a pivotal role at that point in time um, to kind of contain the crowd and keep it in a more positive light. No. No. Okay, then educate us. Okay, what is what is sports? I guess sports. It could be sports personship. What is what is sports? Good sport conduct is one of the terms that people are using now. Yes. What what is it? What really should it be? And, um, and just start teaching us what is our goal here. And, and do it because there's a reason we're – I'm, I'm mainly thinking of our youth and our – Right. I mean high school, college, college on, that's a different game it seems like. Right. But the, teach us how we should be teaching good sport conduct with our youth. Um, so we typically think about good sport to conduct as respect to ourselves, respect to the coaches, respect to our opponents – respect to the referee, and then respect to the game. Um, and so, again, what, what happens is the interpretation of what that means varies person to person. Um, and, of course, with the unique environment of, of sport, um, that people have very, can have very different interpretations. Um, but what we need to have is at the youth level, coaches need to be very clear with athletes about what behaviors are acceptable. And they need to be clear with parents about what behaviors are acceptable. Um, they can do this by, you know, sending out letters to, to parents. Um, they can do it by bringing in um, media stories that have happened about good sport conduct um, and share it and have a discussion. They can also do it with poor sport conduct. Um, when you see someone punch someone else on the, on the field mm-hmm. or, um, you know, be really quite demeaning and rude in terms of language that you come in and you have a conversation with your players about why this is not appropriate. Um, And I think that it has to be institutionalized so that it has to start, you know, within the high school setting with the athletic director and getting people on board that way. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of athletic associations, state athletic associations, are doing some great, great things. They often have sportsmanship summits. Um, So the Michigan High School Athletic Association, for example, has a sportsmanship summit that they offer every year, and they have schools come, and they have these discussions about what high school sports should be. Um, Most high school athletic associations also have kind of a sportsmanship award, um, and this allows schools then to have these conversations about what uh, good sport conduct is. I love that. I, by yeah. the way, I love that because I'm biased because when I was in Gremlin football, I won the sportsmanship award. Great. Thank you. And You're welcome. It's also be, but it was also because I hated contact sports. So oh, okay. I, I'd always let everyone else play in my position. Right. And they, they thought I was the nicest guy in the world because I'm like, <laughs> hey, doesn't Jimmy need to go in? Jimmy hasn't gone in yet. <laughs> I'm pathetic. Hey, well, um, yeah. but, but part of the sportsmanship in your article, and we'll post this article on our Twitter page. Okay, great. At Dr. Matt Show, so people can get a link to it. But it's it's shaking their hands. It's helping opponents up. 
after uh, after they've fallen or whatever. It's accepting the decision of a referee. How many times do our kids now argue with a ref? I mean, it's crazy Or because the parents are arguing with the ref and now the kids are starting to argue with referees. Yep. It's crazy. Yep. It but, is crazy. It but the coaches crazy. can help that if we're if we're saying we don't do that. Exactly. And have it very clear that the coach's role is to communicate with the refs or it is the captain's role on the team to communicate with the refs um, and train, if it is the captain, train the captain on how to have a respectful conversation hmm. um, and, and practice it in the heat of the moment because that's often what happens is that we may know how to act, but then we're in this heat of the moment and we're not thinking. And so we just respond very quickly. Yeah. I mean, some of it could even be cause just dealing with your your other emotions, like like the, just the crying, the tantrum, the you miss the you miss the shot. Uh, and because th- that's what sports is about is management of life and emotion. Exactly. Um, and and that is exactly you know part of this is is learning to self regulate and utilize our own emotions um, in a way that if we do get angry and we are upset at our opponent for doing something that we're able to bounce back and focus on what we need to do at that particular time. Mm. I, I it's to me it's why we should be playing sports. Yeah, um, and um, just having the idea that our opponents are are there to make us better. Yeah. They're helping us reveal what our true skills are um, and kind of keeping that in mind throughout the competition and season. I love that. Let's take a break. We're speaking with uh, Dr. Jennifer Waldron from University of Northern Iowa. We're talking about encouraging good sport conduct in athletes. And for you parents, be listening up. This is this is what you should be doing, helping, making sure that your teams are doing when you think of your little league coaches and when you're going to be the team mom or the team dad, you can facilitate some of these things and uh, and actually lift and elevate the, the game for your children and for everyone else. We'll take a break, folks. Come back. We're discussing sportsmanship and uh, good sport conduct. Stick with us. We'll be right back. I love that song. Hey, that is that stadium music. You can only get away with that, you know, so many places. Hey, welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We're talking about uh, good sportsmanship, good sportspersonship, and uh, the need for all of us to to pick up our games. As a dad of five boys and one daughter, I um, I've been to a lot of sporting events. And many times I will see the parents being the worst sports on uh, in the entire stadium. So if we want to fix that, then parents, we probably need to learn how to model uh, better sports conduct. And here to help us do that is our wonderful guest. Um, and when we get into this, Dr. Jennifer Waldron um, from the University of Northern Iowa, she is in the School of Health, Physical Education, and Leisure Services and she's she's helping us understand that, you know, this can be taught. And one of the things she taught us before the break is you're on the court. The competitor is really 
a great tool, a great help for you because they're showing you your, your weaknesses. They're showing you what your abilities really can do. So they, they're not your enemy. They are – they're there to teach you possibly. Um, so there should be a, a very high level of respect for these people. And, uh, and hopefully we as parents are the ones modeling that. So Jennifer, Dr. Jennifer Waldron, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Talk about the role that maybe um, that we as parents could be playing with our kids uh, maybe after a game. How does that work? How, what would you suggest we talk to our kids about and, and try to instruct them on? Yes. Yeah, so one of the first automatic questions that parents ask their, their children after a game, um, if they were there or not there, excuse me, is, did you win? And so the questions that we often ask as, as parents, it puts this automatic emphasis on, on winning. And so kids learn that that becomes the most important thing. Yeah. And so one of the things that we can do as parents is to take that emphasis off of winning. Winning's a part of sport. We enjoy winning. That's part of the fun of competition. But it's already there. We don't need to continue to stress it as, as parents and as coaches. And so, you know, asking other questions in terms of um, what did you do really well during the game today? Uh, what did you learn? Uh, I had so much fun watching you. And this way, it takes the emphasis off of winning because a lot of times these behaviors that we see are, are linked to winning um, and trying to win at whatever cost possible. Yeah. Um, so, so that's one thing that, that parents can definitely do. Um, another thing that I know in uh, some youth sport leagues is that uh, some coaches identify a couple of parents to sort of be uh, the – sort of leaders in the stands Mm. and because coaches are busy during competition then these other parents who they've kind of identified as these leaders sort of work to make sure that parents are keeping their own behaviors under control in the stands and and showing the uh, behaviors that we want Um, talking to your children about the great plays that their opponents made um, because we should be in wonder and awe at what these other kids are able to do also. And just saying, wow, I saw that player and that was an amazing steal that they had during the game Um, and showing appreciation for that also. That's cool. And and even clapping for them, cheer. I mean, I've seen that happen and I think that is so mature. If we can actually cheer a really great move, even against our own team. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And you do see that in the stands. And you do, you know, there have been some stories that have kind of come out about parents doing that. Mm. It's so, honestly, there's, but it's a spirit. And it's it's the right kind of spirit, right? It's a spirit of just appreciation. And you can still be competitive and learn. Um, Did you hear about the wrestler that uh, had been undefeated? And then he um, he was he had never lost a match, and he play he then wrestled a boy with special needs, and that yeah. boy he let him he didn't let him win. I guess he let him win. Yeah. And it went on his record. That's mm-hmm. huge. I mean, it's it just that changes everything, doesn't it? It does. I mean, it really, really does. And if you look at statistically speaking, most of our kids are not going to receive a Division One college scholarship to play right. 
um, whatever sport, and even those who do, most of them are not going to go on to play professionally. Um, and so this win-at-all-costs mentality just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. No. Um, and, and winning is important. I, I yeah. want to make that clear right. that that's, I mean, I am competitive. That's why I love to play sports. There, it's fun to win. But there's a way to do it while still being respectful and a way to do it where, you know, I am successful when I'm able to show my skills and improve and learn and develop. But it seems like if you're teaching sports sports personship or sports um, conduct, good sports conduct, the entire year, your kids will amaze you how well they can do it. it it's very true um, that when there's conversations in place, when there's role modeling, when there's a priority put on that, it is really amazing what behaviors that they're able to engage in um, that just really show – you know, respect and, um, you know, that good sport conduct. And even beyond just helping someone up after they have, um, you know, gotten hurt, but there are many more behaviors that we see um, talking to players after the game, um, not just giving a handshake, but, you know, really showing admiration for the skills of Mm. of, uh, opponent. And it's, but once the chemistry's kicked in, and everyone's in their combat fighter flight mode. It, it sometimes it turns into a whole different game, doesn't it? Yes, and and that comes back to what you were talking about in terms of the the self regulation um, and athletes being able to control their emotions when they get into these very emotional situations. Yeah. Um, you know, this fight or flight that we're in and this will to win um, can kick in and, and take over. Um, I think at that point in time, that is one of the coaches or assistant coaches or captain's role is to realize when players are sort of on the edge of losing that emotional control um, and, and taking action. Hmm. Even here at BYU, uh, I don't know if you heard about the rivalry between the Brigham Young University and the University of Utah, but yes. now the University of Utah won't. Uh, they're kind of suspending any basketball play uh, with Brigham Young University because the coach of the University of Utah feels it's just getting out of hand for the fans and for the players. And it's 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 a big it's a huge deal. And um, because there have been fist fights and other issues. And, I mean, the stadium and the fans are horrible anyway, which I'm, uh-huh. I'm sure it happens in Iowa. Right. Um, You're right. We but, have big rivalries. But, but in, a, what I, in a weird way, he's addressing it at least. I mean, we're at least addressing it now. People are talking about it. I mean, they'd rather still play to and talk about it. But I guess part of what you're teaching us is we need to point out when it's not going well. Right. And, and right. talk about it with the parents and the team and and hold people accountable. I, I think that's what you teach us is, you know, identify problems, identify positive and negative actions, teach teach people to make choices better. Exactly. And, and that should be one of the roles of sport. I mean, sport isn't just about competing, but it's about learning these skills that carry over to life. And they don't automatically happen. And so we need to have you know, adults, coaches, parents, other people to be involved to to shape those experiences, Um, especially developmentally. You know, kids 
are still trying to figure out what different things mean in life. And so when we can help interpret those experiences to the youth, um, they're going to come out much, much better, um, not just in sport, but in their whole entire life. Yeah. Is this, do, do you sense it's getting worse? I mean, I kind of assumed it is, um, just because there's a little more kind of in-your-face taunting. But is it is sports conduct dropping, or are we more, I don't know. It seems I, like I we're think, more enlightened than maybe we used to be. Right. I think it is a, um, I think it's a mixed bag right now. Um, I think that organizations and sport um, institutions have been doing things putting stuff in place to try to promote good sport conduct, um, both as spectators and athletes and coaches. Um, and I think that there are some amazing stories out there, like the high school wrestler that you talked about, that we hear just very briefly. But those big incidents that happen in terms of fights breaking out, people rushing the field, um, you know, horrific language, whatever that may be, are the ones that capture our attention and right. that we tend to see over and over and over again. Um, so I think that there is this new emphasis on conduct, and I think a lot of people are, are working hard. We just don't necessarily hear those stories as much as the bad, ugly ones. Yeah, yeah. In fact, that's why on our show we always like to highlight a hero, and it's amazing how many times it can come from uh, you know, an, an athletic event. or Yes. I mean, and again, I think the kids – their heart, they're probably more willing to do it. It's the sometimes that I see the worst sportsmanship by parents than I ever see by the kids. And oftentimes it is. It's the parents who are not, who become so invested in their child yeah. that they're not able to control their emotions right. of just being a fan. And when you're spending $4,000 for your child's Little League athletic advanced program, yep. that's maybe another part of the problem. Yes, so we do see, I mean, that's another part of the problems. We see this early sports specialization and year-round training, and, you know, I need to purchase all these new things Mm. and lessons for my kids because if I don't, then they're not going to be competitive, and if they're not competitive, they're not going to make the high school team. Um, And so there is this much, much greater investment, both in terms of time, energy, and money um, for families. Oh, talk. Uh, we've got just one more minute or so. Okay. Give us the one thing that parents just need to remember when it comes to their kids, when it comes to sportsmanship, when it comes to teaching this to our children. What's the what would you say is the number one thing parents can do to build esteem uh, in their children through sporting? I think it is to remember that um, your your kids are out there to enjoy the sport. And although winning is enjoyable, what is also enjoyable and a lot of fun is skill improvement, learning, playing as a team, um, and all these sort of other qualities that um, lead to success. And so as parents, it's emphasizing that being successful is hard work, effort, um, improvement, development, and being a good team member. Mm. And when we do that, that is being successful. Well done. Dr. Jennifer Waldron, thank you so much for thank your you. insight. Uh, really, parents, that's, such, that's what it's about. Where's the enjoyment of the sport? How many kids are getting burnt out before they've even graduated from high school? They don't even want to play the sport anymore. They're tired. <sighs> Interesting stuff. Again, we appreciate Dr. Jennifer Waldron 
um, from who's an associate professor of education uh, and uh, physical education leisure services at the University of Northern Iowa. We'll take a break, folks, and uh, continue on the other side. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. We need to be better sports. Again, I get to see, I don't know, four, three, maybe basketball games a week. Brought to me by my children. I probably could see five if I was a better father. (sighs) And uh, plus practices. But there's that whole crossover dribble thing, man, where you cross over and you break their ankles, they say. Kids fall to the ground. Then you stare them down. Boom. And then you shoot the three right over them. Swish. That's how you taunt someone. But I got, you know, we, I got kids that play basketball in my front room of my house, my entryway to my house. Because we have a hoop there, just a little Nerf hoop. But my kids are taunting each other all the time. We got to step in and be better parents. Hey, um, it's not just on the court that you have problems. A judge certified charges to a grand jury against a Virginia man accused of wearing camouflage, a camouflaged mask on a neighbor's property while carrying a gun and a suspicious bag of bacon. A gun, a mask. And a suspicious bag of bacon, folks. There's something amok. Cater uh, is charged with felony wearing of a mask in public, misdemeanor trespassing, public intoxication, and carrying a gun while intoxicated. Deputies found Cater hiding behind a dog kennel on a neighbor's property around 10 p.m. after the property owner heard his dogs barking and went to investigate. Deputies found Cater with a 9-millimeter handgun. Are you kidding? That's crazy. And a bag of bacon covered in an unknown oily substance. See what's happening? It's not just on the court that there's bad behavior. It's also in the kennel or near the kennel. So what's the answer for bad behavior of a guy carrying a 9 millimeter and... Taze it. Taze it. And you don't mess with bacon. That guy was, he was going to do something with those dogs. He was, I bet it was like he had X-lax that he was going to put on that bacon. Because that's what we used to do in high school. Really? Not we. I said that wrong. You. That's what some juvenile delinquents did. Oh, okay. In high school. You'd like make brownies with X-lax. And gave them to dogs or gave them to your classmates? No, yeah, you'd only give them to dogs. Oh. I don't know. I didn't do that. Uh-huh. I, I can't cook. Um, you taste them. See, folks? 1-800-CHAT-BYU. 855-CHAT-BYU. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. 
I just don't want him really to call about the taser. Oh, okay. Yeah, but thank you. <laughs> now they're really going to call about the taser. Yeah, the, the government actually told us we can't sell it on air. Yeah. Well, we're not selling it. We're just We're just talking about it. Hour number two, the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us, folks. Next hour, more ideas, more tools to help you find the good in life. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. This is the show where we give you the information, the tools, the ideas, the solutions you need to live longer, love stronger, lead a healthier, happier life. Today, we've already done it. Two hours. We've talked sportsmanship. We've talked about the discourse that's kind of going awry in the political world. And today, uh, this hour, we're going to be getting into the best age to marry. Is there an ideal age, according to researchers, for when, you know, it's is the ideal time to get married? Some would say the minute somebody's willing to marry your crazy mug. Before they can make any other decisions. Yeah. you. So you like the trap method. Could be. You want them trapped. I call it the deception method. What do you mean by that? The you mean the mate and switch? Yeah, yeah. We had a big discussion with our producers yesterday because many of them aren't. Oh right, I was there. They're not feeling that they're going to. I don't know how you put this. Be, what they're what it is is we have a lot of females on the staff, and we pretty much have two males. One is really young. Mm-hmm. And then there's Ben. Yep. And Ben's what we would call very inactive in the dating world. Not as of late, though. I've been Whoa. Hey, what? moving up in the world. So what that let me just let me just decipher what that means. Oh, okay. He's gone on a date in the last six months. It was a study date though. Yeah, it's not a real date. It was more of a study group. Wasn't it more of like, can you help me pass this class? It well he, he was a tutor. To, to be honest, I, I emailed a girl my notes. So. Okay. So it really wasn't a date. It was just more of an email transaction. Yeah. Well. Yeah. See, that's why the it, ladies. It, it was a step forward for me. Well, that's why, the, that's why the female producers are all mad because they, they want you to pick your game up. Yeah. I mean, a lot of them would, would love to just go out with you. Well, if, if they just step up, I mean. I know. I'd, if they'd ask me. You know, it, Kaylee came in today. Yes. And the studio's a very, it's an airtight room. I mean, it's a, it, the door's shut. Yeah. It's. Sure. She, she smells like a coconut. <laughs> and I don't want to, I didn't want to tell her this, but she smells like, now the room smells like a coconut. Yeah. Kind of a tropical sea breeze yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. At first she walked in and her whole lead was, I showered. It's so weird. Like, yay. Thanks. Yeah. 
Isn't that expected, though? Yeah, that seems like a no-brainer to me. Kind of a common behavior. But... And then she coconutted up. I guess she broke open a coconut. and mm. So now it smells in here. I mean, a good smell, like a coconut. That's the only way I would interpret your comments. That's <laughs> in a good way. Hey, um, so we had the big discussion, and the producers are trying to figure out what's the right time to marry. They were kind of perplexed. And some were ticked. Yeah. And a lot of a lot of the anger was toward Ben. So um when you have five female producers and two male producers and the male two males aren't producing. Wow. Uh dates. Right. Then we we have a question that needs to be answered. Dr. Yeah. Willoughby's here to do that. That's it. We he's the source we go to. Yeah. He's the go-to source, the go-to guy. He's on the faculty here at BYU's Family Life And people are department. fascinated by this topic. Oh, they are. There's so, the concept of getting married too early yeah, or do you, you don't wait want, till you're 35? You, you don't want too young, right? You no. don't want too young. You don't want too old. You don't want it underripe. You don't want it overripe. Where's just right? Where's right in the middle? He wrote the article, The Ripe Age for Marriage. It's like trying to navigate an avocado. Yeah. When's that time where it's just perfect yeah. to eat? And you don't want it to just brown. No. Nothing worse than a brown marriage with a really hard pit in the middle. Yeah. It's a great metaphor. So we'll be talking with the good Brian Willoughby in just a minute. Uh, But before we do that, let's get to the headlines, Terry. Anything going on around the world? There is. Thanks, Matt. On Wednesday, today, President Obama will make his first visit to a U.S. mosque during his time at the White House when he meets with the Muslim Americans at the uh, Islamic Society of Baltimore. His visit, the New York Times reports, comes as Obama grows frustrated with the anti-Muslim rhetoric of Republican presidential candidates. We have seen an alarming willingness on the part of some Republicans to try and marginalize law-abiding patriotic Muslim Americans, and it's offensive, White House Press Secretary Josh Earnest said on Tuesday. Of course, President Obama gets criticized because he's this far into his presidency. So like, oh, first time. now you're going to go to the Muslim church. Right. And then there's some people criticizing because it's the wrong Muslim church. These people may be affiliated with the uh, Islamic Brotherhood. That's right. running you can't win. Egypt, but, so. okay. Yeah. I don't know. Choices. We'll see what happens. Bernie Sanders raised $3 million in 24 hours following the Iowa caucuses. Fill the burn. Crazy. But Hillary Clinton might be the only Democrat Democratic presidential candidate on stage at Thursday's debate. Unless, that is, she agrees to Bernie Sanders' demands for future debates. Yeah, because I thought we weren't going to do more debates. Now, right? now Bernie's on board if everyone agrees. But Bernie wanted to do more earlier. But remember, the Democratic committee... The, operating in behalf of Hillary, they thought. Bernie says Tuesday afternoon that MSNBC hosted debates remain up in the air because he's still holding out on Clinton's agreement to a debate in New York before she uh, agreed before he agrees to show up on Thursday. Yeah. So he wants a debate in New York. He City. says he loves debates. He'll take twenty more. He goes. I would like to see us do a debate in New York City, and I'm a little bit amazed that Secretary Secretary Clinton does not want to have a debate in the state she represented. Hmm. So. Pres- uh, Hillary Clinton, however, is convinced that Thursday's debate will happen and said that she plans to participate. Do you think that, that her debate, her desire to debate, has something to do with the fact that she's she's behind in the polls in New Hampshire? Could be. Do you think she'd want to debate in South Carolina? Don't know. Or in in Nevada or Probably. Florida? Or yeah. She should have a debate in every state. That's what she's I, – I, yeah. We'll see. I don't know. Bernie, Bernie Sanders – 
doing this sort of Trump-esque sort yeah. of protest thing. I don't know. All maybe right, yeah. maybe he needs to look at Donald Trump and see what happened to him. Yeah, that didn't go too well. I'm thinking maybe he lost uh, But some... it was great for the veterans. <laughs> Following his stunning Iowa caucus defeat to the hands of Ted Cruz, Donald Trump broke his sweet, brief Twitter silence Tuesday morning posting, My experience in Iowa was a great one. I started out with all the experts saying I couldn't do well there and then ended up in second place. Nice. Trump piled on excuses and follow-up tweets, adding, because I was told I could not do well in Iowa, I spent very little there. A fraction of Cruz and Rubio came in a strong second. Great honor. He also suggested the media has covered his loss unfairly by not mentioning that he brought in record voters and got the second-highest vote total in history Mm. to Ted Cruz's all-time vote total in history, obviously. Furthermore, he whined. As this says, I don't believe I have uh, been given any credit by the voters for self-funding my campaign. The only one I will keep doing it, but it's not. Or what's it? It's not worth it, he says. Yeah, it's not worth it. But hold it. He's self-funding it, and he just that's a that's a kudo. We should all be like, hey, good job for self-funding yeah. it. But it's not worth it. In that he's not getting credit for what he's doing. Well, is it worth it or isn't it, Donald? Yes or no. Credit or not. We'll have to figure that out. Yeah. You're running for the president for a reason. It should all be worth it. Top Army and Marine Corps officers testified on Tuesday that women should be required to register for military drafts. This Absolutely. is in the Washington Post. The decision comes on the heels of the Pentagon's recent expansion of combat unit jobs to women in the service. The selective service system has since existed since 1917, but it's never required women to face the draft and possible military service. Nearly all men between 18 and 26 are required to register, including non-U.S. citizens living in the country, such as refugees. Well, it seems like a no-brainer, right? Everybody. If everybody's in, we all are in. It is my personal view in light of integration that every American physically qualified should register for the draft, Marine Corps Commandant General Robert Neller told the Senate. Why not? I've kind of asked some of our producers. I, Kaylee would love it. By the way, no, nothing would be finer than a coconut-bathed cadet. Producer not on board with that. Yeah. Does not think that's a good idea. Yeah, she says her eyes are bad. And finally, if Ohio Governor John Kasich wins the White House, yeah, if he has one massive promise to make good on re- reuniting Pink Floyd. Well. That's he, he, he says Roger, committed to that. Roger Waters is a remarkable artist, the Republican presidential candidate said of the Pink Floyd co-founder in an interview with CNN. He goes, I saw the wall. I saw it in Pittsburgh. <laughs> it was absolutely incredible. And if I'm president, I'm going to do once and for all, try to reunite Pink Floyd to come together and play a couple songs. So Trump builds a wall. Bernie, you know, levels the playing field financially, economically. Kasich unites, reunites Pink Floyd. Boy, that's easy to pick. Well, Trump wants to build a wall, and apparently Kasich saw the wall. Yeah, he saw the wall. I think that's great. What a great promise. I promise, if elected president of the United States, that I will reunite Pink Floyd. Though apparently after their last album, some members of Pink Floyd said they will never do this again. Can I just suggest with, you know, the deaths of so many great musicians recently, they better hurry. Elect, elect Governor Kasich right now, because time is a ticking. Interesting stuff. We're going to take a break, folks, talking about time ticking. What is the ideal age, according to researchers, to get married? You know? 
it's you know, we already know the population there more and more people are waiting to get married till later in life but according to some of the latest research uh there's a certain ideal age some are too young some are too old our good friend dr brian willoughby from uh brigham young university's college of family home and social sciences he'll be joining us to uh talk about the ripe age for marriage stick with us folks this is the matt townsend show we'll be right back Welcome back, friends. Truly, bluely, one of my favorite uh, guests is in the room, and he's he's battling a cold. Um, so we'll give him the benefit of the doubt, and we'll just assume that his rugged, incredibly rich, deep voice is the sickness. Uh, his name's Dr. Brian Willoughby. He's an assistant professor here at the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University, and is also the director of the Relate Institute. Which, if you go to the website, relate. Institute.com. Institute.com. It's that easy? It's a hard one. <laughs> RelateInstitute.com. It's, it's a wonderful survey that you can go um, take with, your, with the person you're dating or married to, mm-hmm. and it'll give you tools to improve your relationship. That's right. And we also have one for single people called Ready to see if you're ready to get married oh, or in a relationship. Okay, okay now here's what we got to talk about for the single people, all the single ladies. Mm-hmm. This was a big fight. Not fight. That sounds negative. This was a big discussion on my team yesterday. What's the right age to get married? Like there's a right or wrong age because when you're in love mm-hmm. and you're 15, yeah. let's get married. Right. Okay. That's not good. That's <laughs> right. Give us the data on that. <laughs> but um, there's more and more people moving marriage off, putting it mm-hmm. off, putting it off. So teach us. What is – first of all, is there a healthy age? Right. 25 and three quarters. Exactly. Man, that's it. Right that no. It's not true, but, but it really is about yeah, 25. You know, this has been more and more of a topic of research um, because, of, like you said, as people have been pushing marriage farther and farther out, the average age of marriage in the U.S. is getting close to 30 huh. for both men and women. And so there's been a lot of discussion about what is the right – is there a right age? Is there an ideal age? And, and, and again, keep in mind that the right age is different for every person. Right, every right. relationship is different. Right. So we're talking on average – you know, what, when, when, when is going to maximize my probability of success? And there's been a lot of different studies out there, a lot of different uh, trains of thought. Um, but we're starting to get to the point where we can make a pretty good um, recommendation to people about there is what I'm starting to call a marriage window hmm. for people. If there is a too young and there is a yeah. too old. Yeah, okay. And the too young would be immaturity. The too old would be... A lot of different things. That's okay, there's good. a lot more All debate right. about the two yeah. old. But you're, the, the, the easy one is the too young. Yeah. There's lots of research out there that suggests that teenage marriage, so before you're 20, yeah. has a really elevated risk of divorce, poor marital quality, all sorts of things. And, and we've known that for, yeah. for a long time. On the other end, though, and, and this has actually been shifting in the last about five or six years in the research, it used to be because it used to be the only thing we looked at was divorce probability. And the research there was pretty clear. The longer you wait, the lower your probability is for divorce. Right. And so there was this kind of notion of, well, the longer you can wait, the longer you can hold off and still get married. The less likely to divorce. The less likely to divorce you are. That's why some people have been claiming 30 is kind of right. the ideal age f- for the divorce window. Right. 
Yeah, because but most the, people don't get married to not divorce. Right. Well, and, and Norval Glenn, a scholar in this area, um, finally came out with a study that said, well, wait a minute. <laughs> divorce is, is good. Yeah. I mean, not good, but yeah. a good outcome to look at. But there's a lot of people that are more concerned about marriage quality and mm-hmm. satisfaction and communication. And, and what about those things? And so he did a study that said, well, what if we combine all these things into an overall assessment of marital health? And, and then what do we see? And he was the first guy to show that although divorce probability goes down as you get older, the probability of marriage being successful peaks at uh-huh. around 23 to 25. Wow. And then after that, it starts to go down. And so the people that were getting married 30 plus had a lower probability of divorce, but they're also increasing their probability of an unhappy marriage. <laughs> oh, that's horrible. Yeah. Because that's – yeah, because then you're stuck. Right. So so now since that study came out, there's been some several studies that have replicated that and now a lot of discussion about the why. You know, yeah. what's going on that's causing those findings and, and several studies now that, that have suggested that there is this window from about 22-ish to about 25, 26 that does look like it is the ideal age hmm. for people to get married. What would make it – so ideal as opposed to 28 and mm-hmm. 29. I mean, yeah. what is the difference between the 22 to 25-year-old couple? Right. There's there's two main things we think are happening. Number one is that one thing that happens when people are waiting until their late 20s and 30s, you have to think about the life course and what people are doing from about 25 to 30. Most yeah. people are in a career. Yeah. They're working their way up a corporate ladder. They're living independently by themselves. And what we think maybe is happening for a lot of them is that it's a lot harder as a 28-year-old to weave my life suddenly with another person uh-huh. than it'd be at 22, 23, when maybe we're still in school, we're right. just out of school, you know, we're kind of getting our life together in the first place. Sure. And and now as, a, again, a late 20s or early 30s person, it's I've got the way I live, I've yeah. got my travel schedule, I've got my work schedule, and then the person I marry, assuming that they're around my same age, has the same thing. Mm. And it becomes really hard to to weave those lives together. And so you get kind of a parallel life type of marriage. Absolutely. And then the thing that, that also factors into those marriages is because we're 30, now there's all this fear of, well, we're not super happy, but I don't want to go back into the dating market. Yeah, that was horrible. Yeah, and, <laughs> and I want to have some kids and the fertility window is closing on us. So That's I guess, true. I guess we'll just go with this. Just stick but, it out. Yeah. Is there a um, – that's so interesting because I I got married at 21, mm-hmm. but one of the things I found is being married, I had my wife with me, driving me mm-hmm. in a way, coaching me, yeah. helping me make the biggest decisions of my life right? versus just kind of doing it all on my own. Right. And then I guess that's what you're saying, yeah. trying to then weave her into these decisions. Yeah, that you've already been making. Or not made because sometimes one of the things we were talking about is – some of the female producers on my show are like, a lot of the guys aren't making those decisions right. without an impetus, right. without something yeah. else going on. And there's there's something powerful about building a life together. Yeah. That we're making these life goals together, that we're planning our life out together. And, and again, in that kind of mid to early 20s age, that's when a lot of people, again, they're getting out of college. They're making those long-term life plans. And when they're making it with a spouse, there's much more buy-in right. to that life plan. It's so true. I mean – but it almost seems too like it's old fashioned. Mm-hmm. Oh, right? yeah. This is just ah, come on. You got to find out who you are. You got to know who you are. 
Right. So get to 30, then you know who you are. Right, exactly. What's your answer to that? Well, well, then it becomes, a, well, yeah, so you, you've spent this decade finding out who you are, but now you're this very independent, autonomous person, yeah. and does that even work anymore right. with a marriage where 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 if I got married, I'd find out who we are. Exactly. Not and who, who I am I, in relation to someone right. mm-hmm. versus who I am by myself. Right. And and there's an illusion that you'll even find out who you are because right. at 46, I feel like I know better who I am now. Right. So I guess I should wait till I'm 46 exactly. to get married. Yeah, there is this kind of myth that particularly among a lot of young adults in their 20s that once I'm out of school and once I've had five or six years to travel and, and do all these things I want to do, then then I will know – yeah, who I am uh-huh. slash I've done all the fun things that I wanted. This is this is a big this is blowing up a big myth though, mm-hmm. yeah. because it's the same thing we talked about before about cohabitating. Mm-hmm. If I cohabitate, then I'll know if I want to really be with this person. Right. Yeah. What does the research say there? That that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but again, that too. So it doesn't have to. We think that. Oh well, yeah. Grandma would have hated if you were cohabitating. Mm-hmm. But it's yeah. not about grandma. The research. Right. Validates it, yeah, and, and and again, it's it's not about a particular religious culture. It's not about an old fashioned traditional value. It, it is more about this life course trajectory, and, and like I said, building an identity together. And and the other really big part of this that, and this is one of the really scary things I talk to my students about, but it's one of the strongest realities of this whole decision making process is what we call marriage markets, mm-hmm. which is essentially who is out there for me yeah. to potentially marry. And one of the other things we think is contributing to these trends is that the the most saturated marriage market in the sense that where I'm going to have the most options for the people that I could marry is going to be in that early 20s to mid-20s window. That's true, huh? By the time I'm in my late 20s to early 30s, my marriage market has shrunk. Right. In some cases, depending on which part of the country I am, drastically. Yeah, and if you can even find the marketplace. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, right. some of you are not no longer in the marketplace. It right. doesn't even – where do you go? Right, exactly. In fact, I, an interview study that I've been doing for the last couple of years has been looking at this transition kind of the early to mid-20s for young adults, and a lot of them expressed that. They said, you know, I – I went through college and I was just kind of having fun and I wanted to get in my career. And, and now maybe I'm starting to think about seriously dating and marriage. But, man, I don't have time. Uh, yeah. You know, between my, between my 90-hour-a-week job right. that I'm in where I'm making nothing, trying to establish myself and, you know, all these hobbies that I want to do. And, and now, of course, I'm supposed to exercise three to five times a week. <laughs> so I'm in my yoga club or doing whatever. I don't even have time to meet anyone. You know, there's the three guys in my workplace yeah. that I can meet, and that's it. And you go to lunch with those three guys, mm-hmm. and then I guess you can go to a bar right. at night. But then, but I don't the, want to meet a guy at a bar, right? Especially the the college graduates because yeah. they they just spent four years doing that. That's exactly and right. They're like, I don't. I'm done with the bar yeah, scene. I'm right. done with that scene. I, well, then you go online. Yep, and then <laughs> then you get this huge spike in online dating in about 25. Are you because I, I was telling the the people here that you guys could go online and they look at me like, "What do you think? I'm just mm-hmm. never going to get married. Do you think I'm just garbage?" <laughs> right. And in my head, I'm thinking, "Give it a couple of years. Yeah. It'll seem like a really good option in right. a few years." Right. Well, and then the problem with the online dating market, at least how it's set up, is that it feeds into this culture of because what do I do when I'm online dating? I go look through all these profiles. Right. Look at the pictures. Look, and I'm trying to find someone who fits into my life instead of again trying to build something. Uh huh. And meshing it in, mm-hmm. yeah. It's almost like yeah. It's almost like when you add an addition to your home, mm-hmm. it doesn't always transition well. Right, right. It's <laughs> There's off always to the like side. the old house yeah. and the new house. As long as you don't get in my way, <laughs> it's true. 
Ooh, that's interesting, Brian. I haven't thought of it that way. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, We'll come back, continue the discussion about the ripe age for marriage. Apparently, it's about 25. Um, 22 to 25 is kind of the, uh, the ideal age for a happy, healthy relationship. If you're only worried about divorce, 30. You're, you're safe. Uh, we'll take a break. Come back more with Dr. Brian Willoughby from the College of Family, Home, and Social Sciences right here at BYU. Stick with us. We'll be back. To the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Brian Willoughby is educating us on uh, on marriage. See, we, we just think, we think we're always different. Everything's different. Everything's different for me. But you're just saying statistically, marriage, there's an ideal age. And there's an right. ideal place where you're going to be around more people that are ideally your potential mate. Mm-hmm. And it's probably more somewhere between 22 and 25 than it is 30. Right. Yep, that's what the research is showing us. If, yeah. if you want to maximize your probability. Yeah, it's all numbers. It's all numbers. It's like yeah. a marketing game. <laughs> yeah. That's what I always tell my clients. Yeah. It's marketing. You need a lot of people by you. That's right. Yeah. And then you've got to have some skills. Yeah. Well, and, and not just that, but back to the marriage market idea is not only is it about having a lot of people, it's about what kind of people yeah. they are is that we know in a marriage market that the most attra- physically attractive, mm-hmm. interpersonally right. attractive, you know, just well successful people tend to marry sooner they tend to go off the market that's true for the most part yeah the alphas mm-hmm. they all kind of i always call it they swim into the lake and they swim yeah. out they don't yeah. sit and swim for years yeah and so that's another part of of waiting again to that late 20s early 30s area is one of the other pieces of this puzzle that we think is a little bit of settling mm. is that i'm getting to that age you know maybe i thought i wanted to marry around 27 28 i'm getting there i'm looking around and there's a little panic yeah of, Oh, you know, I I need to make this decision, and well, there's this guy, and he's decent, and yeah. you know, I I guess I can. I'll do, that. do it. Yeah, yeah. But I guess too. There's, um, there's. It seems like the longer we get, so if I get to a 34 year old pool, mm-hmm. and I could just gather the pool of 34 year olds mm-hmm. in the pool itself, you might have people that have more aversion to marriage and commitment. Right. So then there's commitment aversion, right? right. So then all of a sudden yeah. you, you get people that may not want to marry anyway. Yeah. And then you also get another thing. There's all these these pieces about the accumulation of relationship experience, which is interesting. This is another one of those myths because on the one hand, we oftentimes assume that, well, the more relationships I'm in, the more I'm going to learn about myself, the more Uh, I'm going to learn what I don't like. And and there's some truth to that. But by the time someone's around the age of 30 and now, it's not just about having a bunch of relationship experience, but at that point, most people have had several significant long-term committed relationships in fall their apart. life. Yeah. Yeah. Fall apart. And what we think part of what is happening is that, yeah, they're learning about themselves and they're learning what they like and don't like, but they're also learning how to break up. Uh, what they're learning is yeah. when this relationship goes south and there's things I don't like, I end it. Right. And we, we sometimes assume, and the myth is, is that, well, as soon as I marry, as soon as I have that piece of paper, mm-hmm. then my mindset will just change. And then if I'm unhappy, I'll want to stay. Yeah. But if I've done that five, six, seven times in my life, 
it's going to be a lot easier to think, well, you know, I'm not happy, so I leave. That's what you do. It seems like evolutionarily we were wired to get partnered early. Mm-hmm. Like probably too early based on the reason, like right. pre, you know, 15, yeah. 14, 13. But um, when we think about a relationship, though, I guess some of this is do you – are we waiting for to find the right person? Is there the right person? I mean I've heard complaints too about, well, a lot of the guys are still fairly immature at 22. And we talk about right. the brain development. The brain's mm-hmm. not fully developed till 25. And so right. I don't want to marry somebody that's not mm-hmm. – Right, quite mature enough. Yeah. So now, now we get into the whole soulmate. There we go. Talk idea about that. of this, this, this belief that's so strong. I'm actually writing about it right now yeah. in one of my papers. That we still have 75 percent of young adults believe that there's one soulmate. There's this one. out there for for me, and that's part of what this delay starts to be about. Is that oh, yeah, you know, this guy's really great, or this girl's really awesome, and we have a great relationship. But man, are they really my soulmate? You know, because there's these three things I don't like about them. And maybe I'll find someone better. Yeah. And it's something that pushes people kind of later in the life course, waiting for that perfect person to come around, which never happens. Right, right. And then, like I said, then they get to 30 and say, well, you know, there was that guy when I was 23 that had these three things I didn't like. Well, now I'm 30 and there's this guy that has 12 things I don't like, but I'm worried I'm not going to make a transition. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'll take the 12 now. Oh. Um, and, and that becomes another reason why people sometimes delay is waiting for that perfect person. Are you seeing anything um, about the maturity of the millennial that's different than and maybe it's not even maybe it's, I don't know, there's something it just seems like something different about right. the the youth I see, the young adult at 20 mm-hmm. versus when I was 20. Yes. I was dying And a lot of people to like date. to point to that brain research is it, which okay, in my opinion. Yeah. What do you think about that? I don't put a lot of stock in it. Yeah, I mean, okay. so there, there is some good research suggests that the brain is continuing to mature. Sure. But we like to use that as an excuse because right. we don't talk about, well, which part of the brain exactly. and has this actually and what changed is it doing and what is us. it doing. Because right. you're right. I mean, you go back a generation or two and all of these trends were happening a lot earlier and the brain hasn't – I'm assuming hasn't evolved in one generation. <laughs> I'm pretty sure in 20 years yeah. it's not. Um, but but with the maturity – and the, the, the fact that you use that word is really interesting. Back to the interview study I've been doing – one of the interesting things we found was the word – we never asked them. We were talking about relationships and marriage, these 20-year-olds, and the word maturity came up more than any other word. And really? we never used it in the interview, but they brought it up. And what we found was happening is that this was this kind of catch-all word huh. that they could use as an excuse for anything. As a peg to and peg And it wasn't it. even just relationships. Yeah. It was about careers and education. It was anything I didn't want to do or that I, I don't want to blame myself for. It's, well, I'm not mature enough yet. Or they're not mature enough. But are they, are they, so they're either judging each other by that or excluding right. themselves yeah. by that. And the interesting thing is interesting. they all use different definitions. Sometimes yeah. maturity was financial independence. Sometimes it was making their own decisions. Emotional, all these, it's, social. It's this kind of buzzword that's out yeah, there. Because that was the word used. Yeah, that, that, that again just becomes this kind of catch-all. I don't want to do this. And so it's maturity yeah. issue, which does, is really interesting. Is there – does it matter – oh, and we're almost done. Does it matter if – uh, if you're a 29-year-old female mm-hmm. marrying a 22-year-old male? Um, age difference does matter a little bit. I mean, in, in terms of all the risk factors out there for healthy relationships, it's it's one of the lower ones. And it has less to do with the age piece, and it has more to do back to the life course and kind of going through life experiences together. 
that a 29 and 22 year old are kind of very different parts of their life. Yeah. And so they're going through different things. They're making different types of decisions. So sometimes that age difference can make a couple relational decisions more difficult just because you're at different places. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that can cause some tension. But like I said, on the long list of things that matter, it's one of the lower ones. So, but if you want to hit the average of 25, you should have a 27-year-old and a 22-year-old. There you go. Or 23-year-old. Yeah, just average it together. That's just the math. Simple math. Well, Brian, we appreciate it. Um, Give us the one thing. What's the one thing that everyone should be thinking about when it comes, well, I mean, I guess those that are wanting to get married. Mm -hmm. What should be the big key to their decision to get married? I think the biggest key is to not worry as much about year and age, but to not put something off for an outside reason. In fact, I I, I hear a lot of adults that wait, even Mm -hmm. though they're in a relationship that they really like, that they think could transition to marriage, just because, again, career or maturity, finish school, all these things, and they let those relationships go and they really regret it. So don't wait. If you're in one... If you're in a good relationship get the and you skills. feel good get about that you person, need. you have the skills and you feel like it could transition to marriage, maybe it's time. Mm. Dr. Brian Willoughby, when's that book coming out? Next year. Oh, man. I know. It takes come, a long time. It's almost on. done. I know, but you, if you want just a little taste of Dr. Brian's work, go to relateinstitute.com or if you want his articles, everything about him, drbrianwilloughby.com. I spend every day, all day on that site. Yeah. I can see I track it. (laughs) It's kind of creepy, isn't it? He's awesome. Brian, thanks, brother. Mm -hmm. Keep up the good work. We'll take a break. Come back. Visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. We're going to shoot it down to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Find out uh, what's going on on College Signing Day. Hello, gentlemen. Are you there? Oh, I can hear you. We are listening to a sports update. We'll come back to it. Uh, They're really busy today because BYU... uh, Sports Nation, they've got to cover all of the college signing days. This is where all the college students get that great opportunity to go, um, you know, figure out how on earth and where on earth they're going to be spending their life playing ball. And, you know, in fact, I think on BYU Sports Nation, right at noon Eastern time, they're going to do a show on college uh, signing day. And then at uh, 7 o'clock, they're also going to do another show, another two two live shows on one day. They're very very busy. Let's uh, let's try it again. Let's go down to Brian Logan, uh, who's filling in today at BYU Sports Nation. Hello, Brian. Are you there, buddy? Yep, I'm here. You're there. How you doing? I'm good. Today's a big day. Chillaxing. Yeah, it is a big day. It's a big day for BYU football and the program, and for. Uh, thousands of kids nationwide. You know, do you remember your college signing day? I do. It was it was uh, it was exciting. It was nothing. Uh, I mean, special. And when I mean when I mean special, uh, a lot of kids, big time recruits, will go to 
you know, these press conferences. Yeah. And we'll have them at restaurants. And they They'll have a bunch of hats. hats. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all nice and fancy. I didn't have any hats <laughs> to choose from. I was actually knocking on doors uh, begging please, please. Uh, for scholarships. So. But you did it. You got in. Yeah, I did. I did. Um, you know, it was by the, the grace of God that he touched uh, Coach Mendenhall's heart uh, and, uh, you know, allowed did, him to offer me a scholarship. Did Coach Mendenhall ever get you a hat? Uh, nope. I mean, that's the least he could have done. <laughs> they never, nope, they didn't give me really anything. Uh, you got some they, they free were, Under they, Armour. They were all by the books. I yeah, mean, you smart. talk about yeah, following the rules. That's you know, good. a lot of kids will See? go on these, these trips and they'll get extra, you know, money. I've heard tons of crazy stories oh, where kids get a lot of things. And uh, I got, uh, yep, nothing. Hey, so on the show, you've got two shows that you're going to be doing today. One, at noon Eastern time, one at I think seven Eastern. What uh, what's going on? What what's the topic? I mean, you're going to hit a hard college signing day. Anything else that you're going to be covering? I would love to tell you about that, Matthew. <laughs> Man, Brian, like, you sound like Spencer. Spencer come back. <laughs> <laughs> How are you, Spence? I was good. I was just listening to Brian's recruiting story. It's a cool story, isn't it? And he's so yeah. humble about it. We still need to get him a BYU hat. I know somebody buy the man a hat. I got like our bowl game hats, but I don't think that counts because yeah, no, that the yeah. bowl game. He won a bowl game, and yeah. the year was over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. so to answer your question, double dose of BYU Sports Nation today. The first hour will include every signee that has already come in and inked that dotted line to sign with BYU football. A little bit of bio about each of them, what they bring to the program. Not to mention the angle that not many people talk about on a day like today, especially at BYU, and that is the return missionaries. Oh yeah, that have already signed. Right, been gone for a couple of years that we got excited about two years ago that have kind of just floated off the map. So who's coming back from that return missionary group that can make an immediate impact? Now we will have that. We have interviews with the head coach Kalani Satake, That's Chris huge. Hoke, Super Bowl champion Pittsburgh Steeler. He's in town in Provo. We'll talk to him. Chad Lewis. I mean, Lavelle Edwards is in the house announcing one of the signees. It's You're kidding. a big day for well, BYU football. And Kalani's a big recruiter, right? So that everyone's hoping that this is this is there's going to be some big announcements. He's been aggressive. Yeah, he certainly has been aggressive. And uh, guys that maybe initially weren't interested in BYU when Bronco Mendenhall was here, and so BYU didn't show interest uh, back. He's getting some guys that because of the Polynesian pipeline. I mean, let's face it, it mm. just opened wide open back up. That's huge. Uh, once he became the head coach and and that staff, which has, you know, four or five Polynesian guys, it, it's it's lining up to be a, a nice little uh, avenue for BYU to get some, some guys that they otherwise wouldn't get. Well, it's a big day and a big show. And who could handle it better than two just incredibly big guys? Um. Brian at his huge stature of five six. <laughs> hey, I forgot I to the, tell you guys, the, I but I think small, he. I got the extra small shirt on today, though. So no, I but Brian know. weighs more than I do. Brian's busted out. I'm about, I'm about one seventy. I went to the doctor's the other day. Okay, so I do weigh more Jeez. than you. Yes. I, was kind of, I was kind of disappointed. In, you need some myself. carrot cake. Today's carrot cake day, guys. <laughs> and by I the need, way, it's uh, also Elmo's birthday. Milk. Who's Elmo? Do 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 Elmo's world. See, yeah, I know that man. I got <laughs> that was kids. horrible. What? That Whoa. was beautiful. That was Brian. Yeah. That was beautiful. No, that was beautiful. It was beautiful. I was using Elmo's voice. No, oh, is that what that was? You guys heard me sing. Elmo's world. You, you heard me sing, man. I don't sound way better. No, that was hot. That was totally hot. Hey, um, guys, I gotta let you go because you've got two shows to do. Holy cow! Okay, so go work out, pump up, knock them dead. Proud of you for plugging both of the shows, by the way, because that's huge. You guys are rock stars. 
Every recruit broken down by the head coach, the offensive coordinator, and the defensive coordinator in hour number two. Holy cow. Five, that's at 7 p.m. Eastern. On the radio, on BYU TV, 6 p.m. Eastern, 4 Mountain. Okay, okay. I'm just glad you're, yeah, you're, you just, you're in charge. Yeah, okay. Thanks, guys. Knock them dead. Thanks, Matt. Have a great day. Oh, that's a big deal. Think of all these kids, their lives. They're, they're signing over their lives today. Do you remember, Ben, when, when we signed you? Signed me to BYU radio? radio? Yeah. Yeah, it was— Do you remember signing I, day? I thought I was going to have more more decision. Yeah. No. But— Well, no. Why would you think that? I don't know. I just—it just seemed like the right thing. Yeah. No. Be, well, you were signing. We were in a police—we were at the police station. Oh, I was—okay. You yeah. were basically— I was bailing you out. What rights do you think you had? I mean, I got and, you and out. And so now I'm just paying off my mm-hmm. your debt, my not even off. to society, your debt to me. And look at all we've done. Look how far we've come, son. Taze it. And by the way, that does uh, talk about the genesis of that tasing idea was when you were in jail. Yeah, I was I was somewhat of the brainchild of the idea. Well, you were actually the recipient of the tase from the police. Well, and yeah, then, but and then you found my, there's got to be a better way to tase people, and and there have to be more benefits from tasing. <laughs> like I, my acne went away, That's just a, completely away yeah. after I was tased yeah. multiple times. You know, every every like miracle product needs a miracle story, and yours was because you had really bad acne. And yeah. then you were running away from the police, and they tased you. And after the tasing, your acne cleared up. People are turning away from Accutane. Like. Yeah. Now they're, they're going to join our new group called Tasertane. Um, today is Elmo's birthday. Elmo turns three and a half this year, which seems amazing to me because it feels like he's been around for years. So how do you turn three and a half on your birthday? Uh, because he's, maybe he's a leap year birthday. I don't know. Okay. It's got to be. In honor of his birthday, there are three and a half fun – here are three and a half fun facts about Elmo you might know. Number one, Elmo is the only non-human to ever testify before the U.S. Congress. Uh, He is not the only character to ever testify before Congress. In 2002, he was invited to testify before the House Education Appropriations Subcommittee to urge more funding for music research and music education in schools. boy, Elmo. Number two, Elmo also appears on Sesame Workshop co-productions in China, Denmark, Germany, India, Indonesia, Israel, Mexico, Pakistan, and South Africa. He's a multinational red character. And the third, a uh, little tidbit about Elmo on his birthday. Um, Elmo's favorite food is wasabi, <laughs> which is why his eyes are uh, so wide open when he's awake. And the third and a half point is that Elmo loves you. That's only half a point? Yeah. Yeah. Makes me makes my eyes water when I say that. I don't know if that's the wasabi or what. Hey, um, did you hear about our diets? We've had some diets recently that we've been trying. The taser diet's one. But another diet is the, um, the taco diet. 
Taco cleanse. Taco cleanse and the nugget diet from Chick-fil-A. But there's a new pizza diet. A chef dropped almost 100 pounds eating pizza every day. Chef Pascual Cosolino says he lost almost 100 pounds while eating a pizza every single day for lunch. The Naples native says the lean and clean Neapolitan-style pies from his New York City restaurant are actually the perfect meal for losing weight. It lets you feel satisfied, and because it's only 540 to 570 calories, it's perfect and fast solution for lunch or dinner. It's a 12-inch pie, and he would eat the whole pie every day. It's made with very good ingredients like crushed tomatoes, Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. but not the overly sugared tomatoes. You don't want that sugary tomato sauce. Thin slices of fresh mozzarella, basil, and a little bit of olive oil. Wow. 94 pounds the guy lost. So he also attributes some of it to his kickboxing. And uh, he, his, his, his focus on getting rid of sugar drinks and soda and also eating the Mediterranean diet and his focus on vegetables and lean proteins. Probably mostly the pizza, though. Yeah, but I'm, I'm betting it was definitely the pizza. <laughs> I have a hard time believing that it's really 570 calories for a 12-inch pizza. I'll believe it. I know, but you'll believe anything. Did I say that out loud? I said that out loud. Yeah, you, you say a lot out, out I, loud. Sometimes I mean to say that in my head. That's what you call a Freudian slip. Actually, nothing Freudian there. <laughs> As a doctor, not Freudian. Okay. Just rude. It was just a rude slip. Hey, uh, here's another little trick for you guys out there. If you're a criminal and uh, you're getting pulled over, you know, on the show, we like to help all people, not just those that aren't criminals. We like to help everybody improve their lives. If you are being pulled over on suspicion of reckless driving in front of a Florida high school and police officers ask you for your driver's license, make sure you give them your license, not your homemade rap CD. I mean, do what you want, but they're different. Volvic Louise Jean Jr.'s driver's license the cops were asking for it, and instead he handed him his homemade rap CD. Gene Jr., 18, was arrested on Wednesday by Palm Beach County School District Police. He said he pulled up to the high school just before 3 p.m. along with two other cars. They sped into the school's bus loop, narrowly missing students, being dismissed from school. Officers in a golf cart followed the cars, pulled into the center of the road, and forced the three cars to stop. In golf carts. <laughs> They were obviously intoxicated. Um, he pulled out his seat. His, uh, when, they, when they walked up to Gene's uh, car, they asked him for his driver's license, and he pulled out his new CD. The cars peeled out into the road and fled the scene, almost hitting more students as they left, according to the arrest report. So they've been charged with fleeing and eluding, reckless driving, and driving with a suspended license, and trespassing, and bad promotion of CDs. It's got to be the right time. You got to. If you're going to try to pitch your CD, always pitch it at the right time. Hey, as you know, we like to end the show on a hero story. And the hero of the days, the heroes of the day, 300 plumbers poured into Flint, Michigan to install water filters for free. They are the heroes. 
Uh, everyone wants to see the city of Flint, uh, you know, be able to make it through their water problem, especially the plumbers. More than 300 union plumbers from all over Michigan flooded into Flint to install free filters for residents this past weekend. According to ABC 12, uh, not all the faucets in Flint can fit a water filter, which the residents need in order to drink the water there. So some of the faucets are older and, and oddly shaped, and they're, they need a plumber to help install new ones. So the local plumbers with the United Association Local 370, they all went door-to-door making sure their faucets are filter-ready, and they started installing uh, the filters. That's pretty cool. They saw it as an American tragedy, and uh, they were there to just help out. So you are the heroes of the day. See, folks, that's all it takes is you see a problem. If you've got the ability, the skills, the resources, what have you, step up. Wherever you look, we can tell you a bad story. Flint was a bad story. But wherever there's a a dark story, there's going to be a silver lining if we look for it. And that's one of the reasons we like to do the show. It's help you see the good in the world. We'll be back again tomorrow, folks. Folks, more idea, more tools to help you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. You can go look us up on our BYU app and download any of our past shows. There's hundreds, 700 of them or so. We'll be back again tomorrow to give you more tools, more ideas. Until then, take care of each other, watch each other's back, and we'll talk again tomorrow.